Tyler. Thank you so much for being willing to take the time. I have been really eager to record this one because I think uh, journalists like yourself play an important role in informing the public and making sure that we have a healthy democracy when it comes to decision making, when it comes to um, natural disasters. But would you be able to uh, tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I grew up in Vernon, B.C., I uh, went to school there and lived there until I graduated high school, and then I went uh, or I spent two years at the local university college there, and then completed a bachelor of journalism degree at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops. After that, I went back to Vernon, where I started working at the local community newspaper called the Vernon Morning Star. There, learned a lot there. Um, when that was done, or after a couple of years, I left uh, with my then-girlfriend, now-wife, and we went traveling for a year and a bit, returned to BC around 2009, and then that was just after the financial crisis, so it was tricky getting a job, and it was a very different time to be looking for a job as a journalist then than now, especially just personally, um, but... Um, Eventually, I was able to thankfully land a job at the Chilliwack Times here in Chilliwack and had a great few years with a, a great team there. And eventually, that paper was bought by a, well, it was bought by a couple of different companies, but eventually bought by Black Press. And I was moved to the Abbotsford News. Chilliwack Times was closed soon thereafter. And I was a reporter at the Abbotsford News until the end of 2020, at which time I left and have just spent the last year and a little bit um, helping create the Fraser Valley Current, which is a new news site, news provider, news something here in the in in the Fraser Valley, and we pr produce a newsletter that goes out every weekday morning along with a uh, longer in-depth contextual and just hopefully generally um, helpful journalism. That's amazing. And I'd like to start, I think, with uh, what took place with the floods, because I feel like a lot of people uh, became aware of the Fraser Valley Current. Uh, it became a primary news source for many people living in the Fraser Valley. And I think it also sheds light on how important local journalism is uh, when events like this take place in, in in terms of informing citizens and allowing people to prepare. Um, I had the opportunity to see some of the amazing feedback you received during that period, and people were saying we evacuated earlier uh, as a consequence of the information we were getting from the Fraser Valley Current um, and perhaps other news sources. But could you could you walk us through what take, took place? Because I think it's important that we we understand kind of the lineage of what took place and and your involvement. Because it sounds like there was a lot of work that went into reporting uh, what was taking place each day. So could you start us perhaps from the beginning, um, those first few days of what was going on? Yeah, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that, um, and just in terms of both how we produced our journalism during that time and just in general about that event, is that um, we like we didn't see the water coming over the border. I didn't see the water coming the border. I didn't um, wasn't spending like particularly a lot, and when I say a lot, I mean I wasn't. I didn't have any specific way to know this. A lot of it comes down to the fact that this event is something that 
um, had happened before, just on a different scale, um, and had been talked about quite extensively, relatively extensively, occasionally, let's say, um, in the last five or six years um, within the city of Abbotsford and specifically was addressed by their city hall uh, occasionally. And they were, they were working on, on addressing it to their credit. Um, They didn't get to it in time because (laughs) rivers fled on their own schedule, I think. Um, But so as a reporter in Abbotsford, I was um, just as part of my day-to-day job I had been watching those council meetings and looking at city documents. And as they were considering um, the threat from the Nooksack, and as I remember their fire chief telling council at one point that it was the thing that kept him up at night. Um, It's something that interested me, but also just as a reporter, it was something that um, I could report on. And so um, one of the things in journalism is that a lot of the work is kind of accumulative and and it comes through just doing your job repeatedly and then you learn something just as you as a podcaster um you don't learn how to how to shape a podcast new every time you every time you start you um you build on that knowledge and same thing as journalists we build on that knowledge not only our skills but the topics we're talking about um and so i i had known quite a bit about that area before not as much as some for sure um but at least enough to be able to comment and see the seriousness of it when we saw a, a heavy rain event and um yeah so similarly similarly um you had the people in washington state there in sumas washington which had been flooded in 2020 see beforehand and have their knowledge suggest that something bad was coming. So on Saturday, they had been sandbagging. And so I think on Sunday, so again, they they saw it coming before I did for sure. Um, And before a lot of others did, um, they had put out a call within the community to start sandbagging um, in case they needed to sandbag because the the potential flood from the Nooksack River. So that was the first tip-off on Sunday um, when... That was the first tip off after I after the the highway started getting closed down because when the highway started getting closed down that suggested the seriousness of this event as somebody who's generally interested in news and as somebody who um had a family member who couldn't travel because of those or could travel but in the opposite direction they wished to travel um because of those highway closures I had come aware that this is something as many people had done this is something that was happening and was particularly serious. And so um, having seen the SUMAS folks um, concerned, that was kind of the tip off that something larger would um, was possible. And then essentially from there, it just started first on Twitter. And then as it became evident that it's something that really was uh, a threat um, through our, our website too, reminding people both, um, telling people about what happened in regards to the landslides and the floods and mentioning the fact that there was um, this other threat across the border, which we in Canada rarely thought about. Most people probably don't know about or didn't know about the Nooksack River and its threat to Canadians. Um, and so that's something as a, as a journalist, it's something that 
I feel like sometimes reporters get um, can be we can be a little bit we have to tell people what other people are telling us. We have to um, we, we but we can be using our judgment and our knowledge ourselves to be informing people. We don't always have to wait for um, authorities to tell people that say. Highway one might be closed between Chilliwack and Abbotsford. We can do that ourselves because even if the the government or the uh, the various bodies in charge um, are hesitant to suggest that that people might want to take caution, which um, historically and I think this thankfully has changed during the floods, um, but um, historically there's been a, a large they've been very adverse to. Um, wanting to create any um, communication that might create some anxiety for people that doesn't eventually pay off, essentially. That, that isn't um, essentially um, justifiable in the rear view. And you can't really do that when you're talking about emergencies because you never know for sure whether a disaster is going to come. And um, one of the things we saw at the in, during the second stage of flooding is that they were a lot more proactive about saying, yes, these these storms could bring a lot of water, they could flood, they could do this, they could do that. And that's to their credit that they've um, adjusted that philosophy. But um, you see it not just in emergency preparedness, but in a whole bunch of different fields where um, there's a lot of uh, hesitancy and barriers structurally for them to put out um, put out certain communications, then we as as independent reporters and people who have our own knowledge can say when we're confident, when we know um, enough, and when the facts line up and you can put A plus B plus C, we can say, okay, actually, this is something that people should be know, be, know about, that some people should uh, care about and be at least aware of, if not um, actively preparing. And in general, we have historically, I think, probably, well, certainly, um, and and it's kind of inevitable. Just we don't consider the the risk of natural disasters and emergencies until they're on us, because there's a lot of different things that can befall us, and it's it's um, you can be just waiting forever, and it never comes. Thankfully, um, and when it does come, it can be a shock, and it can be something that. Um, you can look back in hindsight and say we should have done this and should have done that. Part of it's just human nature, I think. Um, a part of it's also just um, being aware and realizing there are certain things you can do to make things easier in the future than after. I'm as guilty as ever, anybody about um, not doing certain things in terms of emergency preparedness. I know um, if we have an emergency preparedness kit um, at home, I, I I think we do, um, but I I. I don't quite um it's gonna need some updating probably <laughs> so so there's a lot of um human nature there that you're trying to overcome and the blame is is i think a little bit um something that i'm not too interested in allocating but it's something that the facts and the knowledge need to be continually stressed yeah a good example i guess is the earthquakes we're always worried about earthquakes coming and we don't 
um, we're always kind of updating people and, and doing drills, um, but it hasn't come. And, and we're, it's always in the back of people's minds that we're, we're due. That's something I commonly hear, but we haven't seen it yet. And so uh, to the government's credit and to other people's credit, um, we warn, but we don't know if it's going to happen. Um, but what did it mean to you as a journalist to have people react so positively um, to your willingness to speak up and say, hey, uh, prepare? Because I saw people say, I evacuated as a consequence of reading this article. Um, did that mean something positive to you as a journalist? Like, um, I've made a positive impact here? Yeah, of course. Um, when, and that's one of the, <coughs> sorry, it's, it's immensely gratifying. That's why somebody chooses to become a reporter is because you believe that the the facts and the your job has makes some difference even if it's incremental in in people's lives and it advances and it's meaningful um the job is i i'm not as pessimistic as some about various pay things but you're not going into it to make large numbers of money or or large amounts of money, you're going into it because um, you can make a living doing something that you see as meaningful, as lots of people do in their various other jobs. And so, um, to have that, to have that feedback, um, and we get great feedback with the current, and it's one of the benefits I think of going straight to people's email inboxes that people can feel very um, open about replying directly to it. And it's one of the what it's been one of the I've been surprised at just how much of it. Has come through and how um, and it is really uh, invigorating and um, it keeps you going and it makes you uh, grateful that there are people out there who are willing to spend their time on on what you're producing and you feel good about helping them in just the same way that um, anybody who has a job in any field feels good when their job leads somebody else to um, have a good experience, whatever it is. That's fantastic. What were those early days like? So you did the reporting of this is a risk that it's coming. Um, did you have conversations with I know you have a coworker, Grace Kennedy, did you guys go through and say, okay, like this looks like it's going to be serious, we're going to be working long days, this is going to be uh, like a lot of information gathering? What were those initial days like of trying to prepare for this or say maybe our regular routines are kind of gone right now, because we're going to try and get information out as best we can? So the the rain and the the landslide started on the Sunday, and on the Sunday I was preparing. I was preparing to uh, welcome another reporter on the Monday. Jothi Graywall was starting with with us on the Monday, and so on Sunday I was just had been thinking about that and excited to welcome a new person to the team and all the things that that brings with it, um, and get to work with Jothi, uh, and then. The landslide started, and so late Sunday, I believe, I, I wrote a a story for our our website and then included that in the newsletter, so that was a little bit of work. And then from there, it was just, it's just, and this is what generally happens when new things happen in journalism, is just there's not much time to plan, especially when it's something that large, you're just trying to create and, or, and, and react to the events that are happening because that's kind of the job. So, uh, on the Monday we would have been, I would have been monitoring again, what's happening, um, evolving that, placing that in the context of kind of what I already knew and what we already knew and, um, and figuring out what story we were going to produce. Cause our main day today is just to produce one 
a story that we hope is very good and that is um, provides something new and provides new information to people. And so that's the day-to-day routine. And I, I, I believe one of the one of the things is on on the Monday. I think I I, I know uh, we had a story running from Grace about the Tashmi um, internment camp just uh, east of Hope. And it was one of the one of I think the best pieces we produced. It was um, uh, Grace had gone out to Tashmi. We'd done research, and it was um, I think one of the it, it remains one of the the best pieces that we've uh, published. And we were excited for that to come out. And then the um, the slides hit, and we very quickly had to kind of just. For, it was had already been published, and but normally we'd spend time on promoting it and that type of thing. But we we turned mostly just to figure out what had happened, where um, landslides were coming down, um, what the traffic situation was. It was that was mainly a Agassiz and Hope situation, and then just re- reacting to that, um, trying to cover um, some news conferences. And Jothi was a great help on those, um, especially in the early days. And she got thrown into the fire. Like starting a job, and then suddenly um, the building's burning down around you, and she just started grabbing water and started throwing water in places, which was immensely helpful. And she, coming from Langley Advanced Times, she knew um, how to do that, and she could um, react. So she was immensely helpful. Grace, as always, is uh, is kind of helps keep everything together in various ways, both seen and unseen. And and so on Monday we basically just covered what had happened. Um, and then by Tuesday, or and by Monday, when we were watching the highway, and I was especially watching the highway and the Nooksack flows, and it was pretty clear that there was water coming across the border. Um, and my mind turned to what had happened in 1990 when the highway was closed down uh, because of a Nooksack-related flood. And so I spent some time writing about that and that those threats and kind of incorporating in some of the uh, the documents from the city of Abbotsford that had been prepared in case of a Nooksack flood and just kind of did our jobs that day and covered it on a more breaking news basis. And then on the Tuesday, I believe, we woke up and uh, the Tuesday was the big day where things had obviously happened. The highway had been closed down the previous night at 5 p.m., without really any warning from authorities, even though we had kind of suggested that it might happen. And so on the Tuesday, we Grace and I, we, we started, we usually meet around 9.15, and um, we said, uh, I suggested that we do a story on kind of how the, the Nooksack River relates to the geography of the region, and especially the draining of Sumas Lake, which occurred 100 years ago, potentially this year um but uh a century ago and people didn't lots of people knew that a lake had been there and a lot of people didn't know a lake had been there but because a lake had been there it related to the geography of the region and created some significant particular threats regarding the nooksack river that uh people didn't realize and created additional risk in um the flood that was occurring because sumas prairie as we we did in the in the future story, and I, if I would have done it again, I would have roped it all into one. Is kind of split in two by a dike, and that dike um, was, and it hadn't breached yet, but it was in the, 
it was the water was starting to come up probably Tuesday morning um, towards it. And so the Tuesday was really the day in which uh, most things took place. And I, I could continue walking you through <laughs> Please, kind of that because, uh, yeah, so so the first thing in the morning I said, we should, said to Grace, we should do a story on uh, <clears throat> Suhas Lake and how it relates to, relates to Nooksack Flood. And maybe you can take one part of it, Grace, and I can take another. And <coughs> and there's been a lot of research done on, on Sumas Lake, to a lot of people's credit. Um, but one recent book Chet was called uh, How We Lost the Lake. And I, I believe I got that name right, by Chad Ryman. And so I, I had read, read it and written about it two or three years ago. And it talked about the lake as a just the lake that had been there and its place in the culture of the region and in the history of the region. And it was, it's a really fascinating book. Um, it's been now lots of people have uh, fortunately come across it as they've hopefully come across the various other writings on Sumas Lake. But luckily that Grace, that book was already on Grace's desk at the time. And so I said, Grace, can you kind of, talk about, uh, write a little bit about the history of the lake. I'll talk about the geography of the region that essentially created the lake in the first place and refills it every now and then. Um, now, and together we kind of just mushed those pieces together in something I think that held up. And then at about two o'clock, three o'clock, somewhere around two or three, um, the city of, or the city of Abbotsford would have held a press conference, I think probably early afternoon. Um, shortly after that, uh, the mayor went up in a helicopter to survey the region. And then shortly after he got um, out of that helicopter, I spoke to him. And I remember that that talk because um, he was clearly, um, he saw the water swamping over the dike for a large, large portion, suggested that the dike um, could fall within an hour or so. And I remember just we have an internal chat and I just wrote it's bad um, as I was talking to him just to the to, the, to Joe to the and uh, Grace because it was clear that this flood which was already clearly very bad in Abbotsford and it closed down the highway which is a key um, artery between for for lots of people lots of people were suddenly stuck in one community or the other um, and suddenly this was going to get worse potentially. And then, of course, the dike broke and the water started, started to flood into Sumas Prairie, which then created the led the water to rise there. And then later that evening, the Abbotsford put out a, its release warning people that there could be catastrophic damage because it expected Barreltown Pump Station to have to close, and which would um, leave the prairie underwater for weeks, if not months. So... Um, so when that came out around seven, we had to go back to the story and revise it, and then, um, but then we published it the next morning, and it's probably the the most read thing I've ever produced. It's uh, it, it was a longer story, but it, um, I think it put it into context kind of the the moment that we were in, and the reason we had got there without like I think one large issue with. Um, with any disaster coverage is trying is trying to both contextualize it for the larger public um, and talk about the reasons and the factors that could go into a disaster without 
minimizing the threat and the kind of the human level costs to um that that poses to real people in the moment and that's always something that you can probably do better um i think in the in the moment then it was useful because it's just useful in showing like what could happen that was the the point of the story it wasn't really to show why this had happened because it hadn't happened yet really when we'd started writing it um but to talk about what could happen what were the factors causing this and um why a river from the united states that normally flows into the pacific ocean near bellingham was suddenly flooding towards um flood flooding abbotsford and then flowing into the fraser river um yeah wow that is a that's a lot to take in. So when you're developing these stories and trying to communicate it, um, what steps are you taking to try and um, make sure that it's coming across? Do you guys go through readings? Uh, like when you're putting a piece like that out, I imagine that there's probably a sense of pressure when you're putting a piece like that out of like, okay, like I'm hitting the release button or it's going out tomorrow morning. Um, what, what process did you have during those moments to kind of go through and make sure that you were happy with the piece? Yeah, so that's kind of one of the one of the big things we are trying to do at the current is um, produce and and frankly we were forced to get away from this during the flood, but produce stories that take longer, um, produce fewer stories, but with like more time on each story because journalism, I kind of think of it, is a resource problem, right? You can either produce a lot of con a lot of um, stories and information and a lot of um, news, or you can spend more of that time on producing less of it. And there's a variety of incentives that um, can tend to push news organizations now towards creating more with less time per story, um, which has, um, and there's just financial incentives in terms of like, just where you're getting advertising revenue from, um, how you're, how you're kind of, making something that's sustainable and it's there's nothing nefarious about it it's just a matter of um also figuring out how many reporters there are in any town and having the obligation to really cover uh, uh x y and z with relatively few uh reporters but one of the things we're trying to do with current and it's one thing that works in part because there are already reporters in the fraser valley doing some of the work that needs to be done too. So we think of ourselves as complementary, complementary um, in that I think we want to be adding extra contextual information. And so getting back to um, your question is that we're trying to, uh, we try and make each story go through, it'll go through at least one, maybe two, maybe three even edits, which are just not just proofing the story to make sure that all ideally it's never perfect. Um, that all the the eyes are in the right places and the T's are in the right places, but that um, the edits are like just to make sure the structure is right. We're not missing major facts. We don't have facts wrong. Um, there's not a gap in the story, and so it's just a matter of revising and having other eyes on a story. So if I'm writing a story, Grace will go through it um, and and edit it extensively, and and likewise and. I edit all the uh, all, all Grace and Jothi stories, and and we talk about what works just stylistically, writing wise. Talk about what works um, as a piece of journalism. What if is something clear enough? Are people going to? Because we can have a 
understanding of something as a writer that doesn't come off to a reader who might not um, hasn't been immersed. This is the first time they're reading about it. So we have to make sure, especially with technical complex science and data stories that we're conveying those in a way that really um, lets people in on kind of what a number means or what like a description of a, of a dike is or kind of puts it in a human context. So all that said, like we, we, yes, we go through the story a couple of times and then ideally go through it, write it again um, or revise it and goes through another edit. And at some point it's just a matter of saying, okay, um, the story is uh, good. We're happy with it. We're confident in it. We have other stories that we could run if we weren't happy with it, but we're happy with this one and that it uh, creates something that provides information to people that's going to be useful, that it's uh, of, it provides that context and information. And then it's just a matter of putting it out there. It's just kind of what a reporter does in terms of at some point you have to be confident enough in, in what you've done to say, okay, here's something that uh, people can read and hopefully draw some value from. Interesting. How do you go about choosing in those early days who to um, highlight? Because you can think perhaps focusing on what politicians are saying or what government people are saying, um, but you could also go to the farmers, you could go to different communities. How do you go about in those in those days selecting uh, which voices need to be elevated and heard from um, in terms of what's most important for people to know about? Right. And and with something like a, the, the flooding it's a matter of realizing what's already been done. And one of the things that we don't want to be doing is doubling up on pe- on what people can find elsewhere or doubling up on what other reporters have done. And lots of reporters were doing really amazing coverage on the human element of the floods and what it was impacting local people on the ground. And it was kind of a decision we made just from the resource point of view and from a um, what we can provide extra value is that we could look at those stories in a way, but there are so many people doing so much great journalism on that. The great thing about our newsletter is that we can just say, instead of creating that information ourselves, we can tell our readers, okay, here's a great story over here on the Vancouver Sun's website. Here's the link to get to that story. Um, go read that. They've done the story on, uh, uh, I don't have one on <laughs> that comes to mind, but I know um, there. Uh, I believe the CBC and I know uh, Vicky at Abbots for News spoke to a saffron farmer on Sumas Prairie, and so we don't need to speak to that same farmer again. Somebody else he's already spent his time um, with those reporters. He's busy. Um, we can send our readers towards those stories and um, let them learn about that, and we can spend our time ourselves creating other valuable information for people and relaying um, information. So we spent our time during the floods, um, both on kind of ideally giving people a pretty concise rundown of what was happening where, um, and then trying to break that into, and then trying to go deeper on certain um, contextual um, topics that we had a background knowledge of or a specific um, knowledge of that would be useful. So Grace did a a good story on the impact on dairy farmers. And she had contacts in the dairy industry because she used to be the editor of the Agassiz, Agassiz uh, Harrison uh, Observer. Observer. Yes, I, I blanked there for a second. She'll uh, 
she is watching this, she'll get very mad at that. Um, but but so she and she had done. She's very interested in all things cows and and dairy farming, and so she had that knowledge already baked into her that she could um, go forward and both go and explore what this meant for her or what this meant for the region while um, using her her knowledge already to kind of expedite that process and make it so that a story that so that we can get the story out fairly quickly so it's useful and similarly uh, I was quite I'm quite familiar with all the Sylvia Abbotsford preparatory uh, documents and uh, with uh, provincial floodplain mapping and and dike uh, assessments and so we could write about those things and uh, again bringing maybe new voices in or old voices on this new topic in um, on those stories while using the kind of just the the background knowledge that we had to ensure both that the story kind of reflects kind of the breadth of ideally uh, knowledge about this topic and just again because journalism is a resource game where you want to create things and you have to make choices about how much time you're going to spend on it it makes it time efficient to spend your time reporting on something that you have that uh, that knowledge of pre-existing. One of the things I really admire journalists like yourself, I think that it's an incredibly important role that I do think people underestimate sometimes the the the, the impact it can have. But the other pe- thing people forget about, because I think there's a challenge with people thinking, well, you wrote 250 words, so I could write 250 words on a topic. Like they don't appreciate the, I think the, the strategies that go into bringing in voices, but they also don't realize the contacts. And so when you were talking about the Nooksack flood, uh, sorry, the Nooksack river, you were talking about um, people you knew that you had spoken to previously on the topic and people who had researched um, the river and how it worked and, and you were bringing those voices in. Can you tell us more about the river um, and uh, some of the people you were speaking to who were, it sounds like experts in the field, uh, if I recall correctly? Yeah, the Nooksack one is is particularly unique because I when we when started the current, I was thinking, okay, we should or we talked about and what what exactly are we gonna like do and how am I gonna spend my time? Um, the currents based were were affiliated with Capital Daily and the Burnaby Beacon and part of Overstory Media Group, which is a new company that's based uh, that that's trying to find these new models based around newsletters um, to create a new model for journalism uh, and ideally focused on quality content over quantity content and creating kind of publications that are going to speak to that and, and create um, and have that as kind of like the driving philosophy and that itself being a value. But so at the start of this, I, I had been interested in a while on, um, about Mount Baker and what would happen if Mount Baker exploded, which is a real possibility, but it's also a thought exercise because the it's very unlikely Mount Baker will explode during our lifetimes, um, but it's a possibility. So again, again, you need to be you should be prepared for them for every disaster, but there are things you prepare for more than others. But a big part of Mount Baker, of course, is that. Um, the Nooksack River drains from its um, flanks and it flows into Bellingham. But um, the one of the biggest dangers from 
a Mount Baker explosion is that it would create lahars, which are like large landslides um, flow down the flanks of a of a volcano um, and basically go through everything in their path. And there'd been um, a, and the science suggests that there had been a, so, so getting back to the story, I thought, okay, let's look at this story. Let's spend a lot of time on this story. So I spent a lot of time looking at Mount Baker. And through that, you find, you learn about um, lahars. And I'd known some of this before, um, is that a lahar once came down from Mount Baker. And right at Everson, where the Nooksack floods, it had it had not gone left towards the Pacific Ocean. It had gone straight into Sumash Prairie. Um, the the evidence suggests, and there's uh, soil analysis. So through that process, which is a interesting story to write, I'd learned a lot about the Nooksack's kind of history and its path, and I have still that that Mount Baker story is going to come out. <laughs> and there's going to be other stories on on kind of the an avulsion, which is basically when a river that used to flow one way, in this case the Nooksack used to flow into Sumas Lake chose to flow to the west into uh, the Pacific Ocean just north of Bellingham. And so I'd been researching all that, and through that, I'd spoken to a few people, and so some of the contacts came from there. Um, but, but really, during, those, that, during that time in the, in the, when we were doing those flood stories, it was a lot of, there weren't a lot of new contacts we were developing and, and talking to in part because we already everybody was super busy everybody was scrambling and we didn't need too much more we were synthesizing information a lot of times that had already been, come out so um i know there was there had been some in, in that one story I, I mentioned uh we just drew on comments that uh the representatives of Sumas First Nation and made in a previous news story to the Vancouver Sun. And so, of course, we attribute that we explained in 2013, I think it was uh, Sumas First Nation, uh, Samath First First Nation uh, counselors told this to the Vancouver Sun. And so there's a lot of, there. there was, that story was a lot of synthesizing information. And throughout the flooding, uh, situation. It's a lot of just knowing where documents are, referring to stories and um, and the historical, like the, the the record of what people have said about this thing, and trying to bring that all together in a in a way that informs people and lets people know what's happening. Because everybody's ridiculously busy during one of these events. Everybody's ridiculously busy normally, so you need to a find people if possible to speak to uh, a certain topic, but you can also just use your own judgment and knowledge to find information that had been collected when things weren't in the middle of a natural disaster. Right. And you you all did a good job of highlighting the risks. So at the beginning, you said that there was a risk um, that this could continue to flood and that there could be increased problems. Um, and then you also highlighted the risk that the Barrowtown pumps could fail. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what those pumps do um, and um, perhaps the positive story that so many people came out to try and prevent it from failing? Yeah. So we, we I, I know for a fact, we didn't actually write that the Barrowtown pump station would fail because I didn't think that that was possible. We, when the city of Abbotsford announced that on the Tuesday at around 7 p.m., 
it was uh, a shock to me and a shock. It seemed like a shock to them that that this could get to the point. And and I'm still kind of it's still hard to wrap your mind around how um, that flood station or that pump station that's vital for draining a huge portion of of farmland could itself be flooded and shut down. Um, and just it's explaining it even verbally is really hard because it's a it's a pump station that drains what once was Sumas Lake. There's also floodgates nearby that drain what is the Sumas River. And Sumas Prairie is essentially split into two by a dike that had failed. It's an extremely complex and this is one of the challenges in and this was one of the challenges for the city of Abbotsford is just explaining to people the various moving, not moving parts, but moving systems here and how they interact with one another. And so the pump station is needed because the 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 bed of what was Sumas Lake is below the level of the Fraser River. So to get water out of that lake bed, you need to pump it up um, two or three meters um, into and just complicating things is that it's not pumping it into the Fraser River. It's pumping it into the, the Sumas River, which is itself drained through some floodgates that stopped the water from going the wrong direction during the flood, which was something that was actually required to happen. So they needed to close the floodgates because the Fraser River had risen. Um, and as I'm saying this, I know it's extremely complex. It's extremely hard like, for anybody listening right now to wrap their head around it, which is one reason why, hey, I like writing and I don't like explaining things, uh, or I don't, uh, uh, audio is not my chosen uh, medium. And then also just that's why you have these challenges of um, this pump station and then uh, people not really realizing this essential nature. There, the, the, the fact that every that you had hundreds of volunteers coming out to essentially sandbag this pump station and save it from um, flooding is both a huge success. It's a it's a tribute to all the people who came out in an emergency. It's a I, th I think one of the it's a huge indicator of like power of social media because social media is I think and I don't know how many how many of those people came because they were called or got an email from a friend. I know a lot of people came after they saw on certain flooding Facebook groups that had been set up in part to deal with like just distributing information that people weren't getting from their authorities and which we were trying to provide, but even, even journalism organizations don't have all that information. So during a natural disaster, the, the Facebook groups became a huge benefit and played a huge role in how people reacted and prepared, especially in the second round of floods for the next round of, um, of atmospheric rivers. So, it was a huge tribute to them. It's also an institutional failure that I'm sure I and I hope people are learning from in government about um, when you need when you have a lot of people come together to save a pump station because they are required to do so, and when they're organized ad hoc by people by volunteers, that's a signal that uh, there was no organization or structure to harness that power. Um, in place already, apparently. Otherwise, you would have had uh, calls go out for volunteers. You would have had sandbagging beforehand, as 
Sumas had done um, before the atmospheric river hit. Uh, but we didn't have that in part because it feels like kind of the the Nooksack took a lot of people by surprise. And and city of Abbotsford knew about the Nooksack River risk and they, they had been preparing a little bit. Um, but the warnings didn't come for a lot of people. And the the information wasn't there that allowed them to provide the help that they may have needed. And when it did come, it often came from these... Uh, these social media groups and these community volunteers who, again, did a great job. But ideally, you have a system in place in which it's structured so that you don't have to rely on, on or, or if you are relying, you're relying on them in a way that you can rely on them and not just hoping that they're there, which fortunately they were in this type of point. That's really interesting. And I think it sheds a lot of light for people on Perhaps the importance of community, because obviously it was a, a beacon of light during uh, a very nerve-wracking time when we were hearing about the the pumps perhaps failing, seeing so many people come out, the photos. I know that a few politicians had come out and started recording all the people working and getting involved in that kind of makes you feel good that your community is able to come together. But to your point, it seems like we need to have um, perhaps more preparedness in terms of these events, uh, whether that's through something like, I know our phones are capable of notifying us if an emergency is happening. Um, perhaps that might have been appropriate here so that people were just aware of what's going on and not to scare people, but to inform them perhaps uh, prepare to evacuate in case need be during those early phases. Um, but I'm also interested to know, you did, I think, a Twitter spaces on the Nooksack River, and this didn't end up happening, but it rerouting. Um, would you be able to uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I think I posted a little bit on, on Twitter about that, and I have a story that, again, is in the works and hopefully it'll come out. But um, there, there's a there's a very low chance. Um, so again, it's um, not something that people should panic about. Or, um, but there's there's a world in which the Nooksack River, which used to flow west or used to flow into Sumas Lake, now flows into the Pacific Ocean. Again, chooses to flow north into um, into the Fraser River, and it, that would happen through. Um, and through through erosion that happens over years or through a large event. And again, the there's been a little bit of work done on this, um, but not much. So you have you have in various documents suggestions that the chances are very low of this happening and, and for reasons X, Y, and Z, um, which is reassuring and good to know because but it's also very low is not zero, which is interesting. So you can have a world in which the Nooksack River, uh, because it is kind of on, you can think of it, of it kind of like on upside down plate, um, and it's right on the on the kind of tipping point there at the very at the moment, and it chooses to go left. Um, and in floods, the water rises just enough so that some of that water goes north into Canada, which. And one of the reasons that it's such a complex issue to prevent the Nooksack River from flowing into Canada in the future is that it might not actually be that complex to stop the river from flowing into Canada. But if you don't do that, it has the potential to significantly increase flooding in the United States, which is a problem when the people who would need to stop that flooding from happening um, are United States officials. So um, 
like they they generally have genuinely have a very tough problem on their hands that requires um a lot of uh incent uh a lot of deciding on what costs what and what's going to create the most benefit um but but all that being said the river flows a little bit during the flood towards canada um but because it flows that way rivers evolve over time and they can eventually choose to go in one direction or another and and so there's a small chance that one day, whether humans are here or not, um, we don't know, would um, a little bit of water would start flowing north and then a little bit more would start flowing north and then a current would change in a certain way and you'd have that river take a new route, as rivers always do. And what's interesting and different about the Nooksack is usually when rivers take a different route, they're in a larger valley where they take a different route and then find their way back to the main channel or that main channel evolves in a certain different way. And the Fraser itself did this. Um, but the Fraser goes in one direction and the Nooksack's on that dinner plate and it could tip one day, maybe thousands of years from now, um, and flow back north and kind of refill Sumas Lake and, and eventually end up in the Fraser. Right. And so the risk there would have been like, it sounds like a catastrophe if that had have happened to us. Um, when you were thinking about this, because it sounds like you're likely one of uh, the top 10 people knowledgeable on the flood systems, on what was taking place at the time, who really has like a holistic understanding of what's taking place. How? What were the things, the risks that you didn't talk about? Were there any concerns about perhaps supply chains, perhaps um, what was going to happen over the next a couple of years, if something did get even worse, like uh, the the river flowing a different direction, what were your kind of less likely concerns of what could have happened? Well, well, I mean, the evolution, which is if a river takes everything, that is like the less likely concern. It's it's probably not going to happen. Very likely, it's not going to happen. Um, but it kind of illustrates kind of the very complex nature of of that river. Uh, the 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 fact that if Barrowtown had been closed down, um, that that lake would have remained there for months on end, that seems like that would have been a higher order of problem. All of these things are things that can be kind of fixed by, and we saw this with the Coca-Cola, fixed with a lot of money and a lot of resources, but it's a lot of money and resources to deal with any of this stuff and and so those are kind of there's there's if there's a possibility for it i've probably written about it because um that's kind of the job and and but i think in general it kind of just goes to show that we um underestimate both the power and the the chances that our world just changes one day significantly and for a long time that are that a natural disaster can have significant events and it's not just something we see on tv it's something that can have prolonged consequences and the people of Lytton and Merritt and, and a variety of other communities and here in the in the Fraser Valley the people who lived on Sumas Prairie are still dealing with this and still dealing with this for a long time our transportation systems that we thought are were robust and just there for us to use in perpetuity um, are at the same type of risk that all these other things are, if not more. And thinking about how um, 
vulnerable they are and how vulnerable our lives are for um, things to be upended. So if you commute between Chilliwack and Abbotsford, that's you, you're you aware that sometimes it'll snow and you won't be able to get to work or there'll be a crash. But I think, um, and I know myself as somebody who, who used to go between Chilliwack and Abbotsford, you don't imagine the day in which that route between Chilliwack and Abbotsford, which is 25, 30 kilometers, um, is closed down for four months or something. And that's not likely to happen, but it's possible. That's what happened has happened in the in the Fraser Canyon, and that's what happened for months between um, in, on the Coquihalla route, which is where people have built their lives thinking you can get from X to well, X to Y in X number of hours or minutes, and then that stops happening, and suddenly your life becomes much more different. Right. What was that like for you? Because you're perhaps traveling around trying to get information, going to take a look at different things, uh, perhaps meeting with different communities, uh, different leaders. Were you ever worried about getting stuck anywhere? Was there any challenges to your ability to move back and forth? And was there ever a time where you were, I'm over here, but uh, if anything happens, I could be stuck over here? So I don't, I, I, we didn't travel around too much during the flooding and, and I have significant family in the interior so i i was actually during during a considerable considerable amount of it actually in the interior and just uh just doing my work from there because we work from home and we are able to um kind of do most of our jobs from there if if required and during a disaster like that um, there are things you can do in the field and there's things you can do not in the field and a lot of the choices we were making in terms of our coverage were Doing things like the stories, synthesizing um, the geography and the the history and stuff that um, we could do from our homes, and we wouldn't have to worry about getting from Chilliwack to Abbotsford. And so we weren't attending the Abbotsford press conferences because you couldn't get from A to B, but um, we could follow those along, and we could try and contact um, officials um, through other channels and. So it's a lot of just decision-making that way. And as a, like again, with everything, it's a matter of what you're spending your time and resources on doing. And if you're spending your time and resources on traveling during something like that, it's not always the best choice because what you're getting for that is, uh, needs, to be, needs to pay off in a certain way. And if you don't see that pay off, then there's, uh, there's a lot of other things you can do while you're reporting on anything really. Um, that are going to have a big impact. So you want to be out in the boat and and within your community enough to get a sense of what's going on, uh, while still being able to uh, create and and have the value that you're creating in your journalism that uh, is going to be there. And you only have so much time to write a story, so you have to kind of pick and choose a lot there. Right. The other thing that I was interested in, um, I saw you asking questions during, a, I think it was like a global news press conference with the government coming out. And it just got me thinking about the the challenge of asking questions in those moments, in those key moments, you maybe get one or two questions and maybe a follow up. Um, how do you go about choosing what you're going to ask? And is that ever a tough circumstance to be in? Because perhaps there's an incentive um, not to ask too tough of a question where the person's just not going to be able to respond, but you want to ask something engaging. 
And so just in my own head, when I heard you asking that question, I just ran a thought experiment in my own head of how, how would I go about doing that? How difficult would it be to, you want to ask this person's time, but you also don't want to make them uncomfortable. Um, you don't want to come across as too critical or one-sided. Uh, there's like, to me, it felt like there was a lot going into my own kind of perspective on how I go about asking those questions. Um, what was that process like for you? Because you only get maybe uh, 30 seconds to a minute of uh, questioning the government on their decision making. Right. And and so we we were involved in a couple press conferences. Like I could go on for for an hour on this and, and nobody really wants to hear my rant on this. But um, the press conferences held by the government and involving government ministers are in certain cases helpful if they have information that they can provide that is new. In part they're helpful in such in in such context because you as a reporter can't get the information through normal communication channels from the government because their communication in general is very risk averse and um, focused on providing information in sound bites that are often not useful and some of that same risk averseness ends up translating to uh, press conferences in which sometimes and there are some ministers that are better than others, some officials better than others who will speak more candidly or not about certain circumstances. And then there are there are ministers and governments and what have you that when you ask them a question, won't answer the question and won't provide information that is actually valuable to readers or listeners or, or what have you. And so there are some circumstances in which we might be working on the story and we are looking for um, some insight into the government's thinking, say, on its long-term flood management plan or on a specific topic that we're working on. So if it's cattle during the, or the number of, yeah, yeah cattle during a, a flood or something. And so we might be able to ask a spe specific question that hopefully can get a specific answer. Um, but in general, um, and I increasingly think this, and lots of people think of this, is that these press conferences, while semi-useful, are often just exercises in which you have politicians trying to avoid saying anything that uh, they haven't pre-planned and run by staff and haven't uh, considered the political implications of. And, and I think that that's a major problem with kind of how governments run communications because it, I don't think it really helps them. It doesn't, people catch on. People like to see when government officials say, I don't know something, I that's not my job, but hopefully we can find you the answer to it, uh, rather than give an answer that has no relation to the thing they don't know about, but at least is an answer. Um, and so how do I, how do we come up with questions is just basically sometimes it, yeah, it's based on like, if we have a story in the works and something that we want to ask about and something we haven't seen addressed, then we can use one of those press conference times to hopefully get a question in. Um, they usually limit each reporter to one, one question and a follow up sometime. And there's only a handful of reporters called upon when there might be um, dozens on any one call. So sometimes it's a lot of luck if you you're, on a call and you get your name called, hopefully they're calling on somebody local regarding a local uh, event like this, unfortunately, and thankfully they did in a couple 
occasions, but we also didn't participate in every news conference because, frankly, not all of them are useful. Sometimes we can just monitor what happens and see if anything new comes out when we don't have a question that we think is actually going to get uh, a answer that is worthwhile and worth sharing because a lot of times it's just um, it's just people talking to try and respond to a question without actually responding to it. That is the thing I think a lot of people feel like we talk about how we want to increase voter turnout. We want to get more people involved in the political process. We want them to engage as a as a citizen and, and take on that responsibility. And then I watch certain um, question and answer periods or certain interactions. And it's it's disheartening as somebody who wants people to engage more and get more involved to see that people not answer the questions and not e- and pretend that they are. And that's discouraging, I think, to some people. And that's where there's this bitterness about government and politics and these challenges. And so I really appreciate you being willing to kind of point that out because the other challenge, at least I see, is that there's certain, um, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, it feels like there's while there's, that's going on with the politicians, there's certain people within the journalistic realm that get comfortable asking the lighter questions rather than the tough questions, even though that might not be popular or easy to do. And I'm just wondering, is that a terrain you have to kind of ride in terms of being willing to say, okay, I'm going to ask this tough question that I'm probably not going to answer, they're not going to answer, um, but it's worth m- perhaps your political capital to spend in asking that question? Or is it easier because you get invited back on, you get invited to ask questions again, to just ask lighter questions? Is that ever a challenge? I mean, I can't speak for to it from really because I'm not on these conferences in consistent ways. And we go when we do take part with like a specific thing in mind. And lots of people, I, I think in general, there's a lot of... Uh, you have to realize it's just well, it is a job, and it's there are practicalities involved where you need an answer on X, Y, and Z, and so you're looking for a comment on X, Y, and Z on on a certain topic, and you're not performing to the cameras, and 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 thankfully you shouldn't be performing to the cameras. Your goal should be to get a a question asked or get a response to and get some information. Your goal is always to solicit information, and if you're in a News conference every day. Um, I mean, it is a lot of work. It's a lot of mental energy too. And so there's going to be times one imagines that that you're trying to find um, some way to get some information for you or your colleagues out of it. And whether it comes off as a fluffball or not, um, your job is to get more information for your news organization on certain topics. And sometimes. Um, you're going to ask a question in a certain way. And you're also inevitably aware that you can ask really hard, hardball questions in a news conference, but asking them in such venues is unlikely often to get any sort of useful response because of the way that people and officials are trained to answer questions. And I mean, some of us have their own self-interest in that, Legitimately, if your job is dependent on kind of avoiding controversy, you're going to try and avoid giving a controversial answer. It's it's human nature, and you can't really fault people too much for some of that. Um, but yeah, so I was like, 
I'm fairly generous. I think we can always do better and reporters can always do better than they do in the same way that, and there, there's different qualities of reporters, just like there's different qualities of people in every pr- profession. So it's kind of life in a lot of respects. Absolutely. And I think that it would be nice if there was a way of highlighting those politicians that you believe give those more honest answers or, or moving in that direction, that there was a benefit to uh, taking those risks. Because I do know that there were some um, political leaders, whether it's municipal or provincial, that were willing to say the harsh truth um, and, and take that risk on people. And I think that those are the voices we should uplift and, and try and make sure stay in those positions, because that is who we we don't we want less people who are trying to be too politically strategic and we want more honesty and more um, honest dialogues and I think that that I guess that's my belief in the role of journalists is not in a bad way but you're holding people's feet to the fire you're saying okay we need the honest truth we're trying to inform the populace on on what's going on on the current events and so you've also been doing this with the decision making regarding the recent BC budget regarding um, the the plans to prevent future flooding. Uh, would you be willing to elaborate on that? Uh, what are you seeing from the recent BC budget that they just released? Yeah, I mean, I mean, right now it's essentially it's too hard, too early to say, and too hard to get an answer to what the actual uh, long-term plans are because there is a long-term. We we did hear in the moment of candidness that the province wants to change how they're changing. Um, how you fund essentially flood protections that, and and the sorts of structures that protect cities like Chilliwack, and but we just don't know how and when that's going to happen. And in part, that's kind of possibly understandable um, because a budget is a huge thing, and and dealing with a disaster, they're going to prioritize the things that have just happened, and there does need to be planning in place to. Um, to figure out how exactly you allocate and speed up the process to improve flood protections. And so that's the thing we tried to highlight in a recent story. While at the same time, that story is basically suggesting that we don't know that it's something that we need to keep an eye on and that the current budget doesn't provide for. Um, and this kind of goes back to what politicians say is that, or, or don't say in that you can, what I just said, like you, you, there, there's a very good story to tell that the the provincial government or any government is taking X, Y, and Z steps, and they will get to the point where they will be spending all the money that's necessary to be protecting the communities that need to be protected. That includes cities and First Nations and um, all those other places that are currently behind insufficiently um, high dikes, and then. All the other complicating factors that go into flood protections, which is that dikes are only one portion of the things that mitigate a flood and that you need more than just flood protections. Um, you need uh, you need wetlands and you need um, cities that are built resilient so that if water does go over the flood, the dikes, then um, there's less damage and you need all sort, those sorts of things. And then you have all the other competing interests for the public dollar, which is you need money to prepare for earthquakes and you need money for healthcare and COVID. And, and so there's all these like legitimately hard and tough decisions that government is making and is always making. And there's stories to be told candidly about how all these things come um, out and people are willing to listen. And people, I think, understand when you tell them that things aren't that easy because 
like I hear it myself. Like if, when you say some, when you report on something, people will say, "Yes, but what about this?" And that's a very; those are often some most insightful comments you get. It's like, "Yes, these are all things we should be considering about. It's not just one or the other. There's a million things that governments need to be spending money on, and that money is tax money. And there's only so much money that people." Um, want to be be paying in taxes and that's a whole other question as to whether the level of taxation is too high or too low and and you get what you pay for often so um but those are long conversations that often it feels like government officials and politicians don't trust the public to have or don't want to have themselves or haven't thought out themselves or could be explaining in a more holistic way to um show that they're both understanding um, of the challenges and the needs ahead while also recognizing and elaborating on all of the challenges they face. And I shouldn't come to me to be making all those excuses for governments. They can make those excuses themselves because those excuses are there. Um, they can, they're not just excuses, they're reasons. But uh, you ask a politician about any of these and some of them will be very candid, and some of them will use the an, use an answer that tries to move somebody on because they don't, in part because they don't have all day because they are complex topics, but also just um, I feel like the more information you tell people, the better it is. The more that you show people that you that these are complex problems that they will understand. We need to trust people a little bit more to. Um, trust people a little bit more with the information rather than assuming that they can't handle complexity and depth. I couldn't agree more. And that is what I'm trying to bring about with this is that I'm not going to make the assumption that we need a quick soundbite. I'm not going to assume that um, the listeners aren't capable of understanding complex issues, that they're along for the ride and they can always go back and listen. One of my I don't want to say it's a dream, but one of my hopes is that this form of communication becomes more appealing to political leaders. Uh, this form of long-form conversation of saying these are the this is the direction I'd like to take our community, our province, um, our our nation, and this is why this is how I've come to these decisions. Rather than debate platforms that are super short and you're trying to say the the harshest thing, or you're trying to see if your numbers go up in that one second, is believing that uh, we're, we're founded on the idea of a democracy and to have a healthy democracy, you need an informed populace that's able to question things for themselves and that the best ideas will win out. I think we've been really lucky so far. Like you think of, yeah, we have tr challenges with healthcare, but our health, I, you go to the doctor, your doctor is there to help you. You might wait a little bit, but you're going to get that service. You think of the challenges, I think, with the US and their teachers um, and how much their teachers make. In Canada, I think we're in a, a far different position. And I think that it's good that we're investing in teachers because they're what's going to educate our next generation. They're the people who are going to make sure we have an informed uh, young people that will eventually take on all the positions that we hold today. And that's incredibly important. And so I think that we are, we're, we're doing really well. I think we can always do better to, to your point. And so I'm just interested to know um, what your thoughts are. Do you think that it's possible that we can move in a really good direction with our, our political system just in general, that we can have more complex conversations? Do you see that uh, over your years as being a journalist that we're having better conversations? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it is going to feel like things are I, I think it's hard to compare 
across times in part because like we we all want to have certain in-depth conversations or we all want to have this or that but everybody also only has so much time and resources and time to spend on any one subject and and everybody also has a right to sometimes unplug from the serious topics and get out and just find a way to declutter your mind and do something that takes your mind away from it and so all those things have to be like there's a reason that politicians um don't spend three hours talking to every single person they come across to explain every single issue. It's just you don't have that time. And it's the same way kind of with reporters. There are a decent number of reporters out there, and if they spent that much time on every reporter every day, um, they'd be working 6,000-hour days. Um, so like, I, I do respect like that there are confines and con- uh, that there are like limits to what you can do and especially there are limits to people's attention span today and what people have the ability to kind of process. I think that you can do some of these things in in shorter ways and there are ways to communicate things better. At the same time, I'm like also wary of expecting brilliance from every person because there are some very competent people out there and there are some people who are normal people who are trying to do their best and and but are normal people like the that um have their own challenges and their own passions and their own skills and attributes and the things that they're good at and things that they're not good at and a lot of us are not good at at well all of us are are aren't great at some things and are better at other things and and so we all bring that to the table and some things sometimes people just aren't able to do the things we hope that they should do or could do Um, at the the same time, I think. So I think a lot of it comes down to like the structures we put in place and what we expect people to do and what the, the things we penalize people for doing and the things we don't penalize people for doing. So I think we, we can do a better job of not penalizing people when they give a, a contextual, but, tough answer that is kind of potentially controversial but you know what they're actually trying to say i think we can give them the benefit of the doubt sometime and because we want the people to take those risks and 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 make those judgments that you know it's going to be better for me to um provide more information even if there's a chance i step on somebody's toes here or there and i think it's the same way when we're talking about anything when we're talking about improving our society is like giving people the benefit of the doubt a little bit so that we can encourage them to take more risks and decrease the riskiness of those risks, I guess you'd say, um, is I think useful and just something to try and I think we can all keep in mind when we're kind of evaluating people and holding people to standards that whether or not we hold ourselves to that standard. And Yeah. That really makes sense. And I think just incentivizing people to be more honest and be more open and then giving the grace of we're going to make some mistakes and I'm not going to get this perfect. And I uh, I interviewed uh, Gitan- Gitanjali Gill on uh, world like global development and, and what's taking place and, and making sure that we have more conversations where uh, you think of 
uh, the idea of a president's speech when they look you into the camera and, and they start talking about an issue. I think that that's something that's important for us to be able to share and and try and develop our understanding of global issues, local issues, where we have that trust of, I'm going to look you in the eye, I'm going to say some things you're not going to like, um, and maybe some things that you're happy to hear about, but this is an honest conversation um, and we're, we're going to go on the wrong, along the ride together. How did you get into this? What made you interested in, in becoming a journalist? Is there something that pulled at you? Uh, were you interested in this for a long time before you went to university for at Thompson Rivers? Uh, how did you get started? Yeah, yeah, it was just it was something that probably goes back to early high school. It's something that I knew I wanted to, or thought I wanted to do from an early age, and in part because I I liked writing and thought that writing would be. Um, something that I felt would be an interesting way to make a career of. And I, I thought like lots of people do, oh, I write books, but writing books is, is tough. And I'm not from like a, uh, I don't have a, like, we weren't like rich growing up and we were, um, I needed a job that was going to pay me money and income and, um, and journalism also offers an, interesting array of things you can do and it's just fun and so it was a it started as a way to make money while writing um and do something interested and then as kind of it tends to go um the more you find out about it and the more you explore the more things you can find interesting to do and suddenly you are um realizing that this is a very interesting career that that can take you in a lot of different directions and that you can make your own in certain ways and you can, you can shape your own path. Um, just like, uh, kind of like what you're, you've been doing and kind of, uh, thinking about where you can go and, and what your, um, your insight and where you, what you can learn about and how you can translate into something that works. Right. And you, did you learn a lot about ethics and responsibilities as a journalist when you were going through school? What did you take away from it that, perhaps surprised you or um excited you yeah going through university i mean going the, the university journalism process is i mean that, that was 15 years ago now and and so you I, I learned how to write a lead which is like the intro to a story um and then i learned some basics and you learn some you, you talk about the ethics of certain things and and probably an ethics class in journalism, um, hopefully, is a lot different than an ethics class in journalism. Or uh, probably today, an ethics class is a lot different than an ethics class fifteen years ago. And hopefully, that's the case. Um, I didn't have any particular problems with my like. We talked about like what's important about a story, why we why fairness is important. You also talked about things like objectivity and how. Um, there's an expectation of objectivity by a lot of people, but there's also an increasing conversations about um, whether objectivity is ever possible um, or something to be strived towards. And there's been a lot of talk about that in the journalism world. And there's a lot of interesting philosophical and moral questions about that that I think are really interesting to explore. I think a lot of it comes down to the fact of just like being transparent. Everything there. I, 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 I'm sympathetic to the, the, the idea that there isn't like a way for a journalist to be objective per se. You're not an automaton robot. There's a choice in every word you make, choose, and there's a choice in every story you pursue. 
So in doing that, all those choices are influenced by who you are as a person. Um, and you can say, okay, just lay out the facts, but choosing which facts are go in the first sentence versus which facts go in the third sentence is a choice that is related to what you think is most important. What you think is most important is dependent on who you are and what you've learned and, and all those sorts of things. And so you can definitely create an illusion of objectivity where you look like a perfectly objective reporter or a perfectly objective news automaton. Um, but in doing so, are you actually deceiving the reader? There's questions about that. And these are all like very gray, like there's arguments for and this against that. Some of these there is no answer to. It's just that you're talking about. So I, it, it does come down to being fair and transparent about kind of where you're coming from and what a story is about and why something is important. And stories are, lots of stories are arguments, essentially. They're an argument that this is important and that this is what the reader should spend their time on. Um, so in, in writing a story, you are making an argument just by writing a story about the stock market. You're making an argument that the stock market is something that people should be interested in or that some people are interested in and that within that story, you're making an argument about what are the interesting things that happen, say, today in the stock market that um, are most relevant to people. And, and so realizing that that's the case um, is important, and it's useful, too, for the public to realize that um, there are all those tr these choices that go into it, and you, as a member of the public, can definitely question a lot of these choices. I think it's harder to expect that those choices don't exist because if they, those choices don't exist, the story doesn't really exist. So, I mean, those are the types of fun things that you end up talking about. You go to go back to your question, like once you get into like the ethics of writing a news story or, or, or the morality of journalism in general or these things. And it's the same sort of thing when I imagine you're doing the podcast and, um, how you choose your interview subjects and who you're, what questions you're asking. You're asking those questions from a point of view and informed by everything you know and informed probably for the better by your your past and um, what you've learned in previous interviews and what has worked and what hasn't worked. And, and so I think it's a lot of that's the same way. Yeah, the thing that's really important to me is to uh, come at most topics as like a student, as uh, a learner, because we do carry um, preconceived notions. And my goal is always to challenge those. Why do I support something? And um, as I've talked about before, I really believe in the term steel manning, uh, to take a position that I completely disagree with, and then make the best arguments I can for it to see if there's there's anything there. Maybe there's not. But uh, going through that thought exercise is important to me, because uh, it's all the academics that I ever really respected, they were really good at making the best argument for something they didn't believe in at all, and being able to lay it out in a strong Daryl Plekis is a, I think a good example mm -hmm. of someone who is able to make an argument as to why people choose to deal drugs like a convincing argument where um, by the end of the class he asked he made a compelling argument to a lot of the people in the class and then said um, like what arguments do you have to not become a drug dealer like how mm -hmm. would you stop these people and a lot of the class went 
I don't. Like, I think it's actually a good move. And to be able to do that to a group of people and have them see all of these points of like, well, what if your family's in poverty? What if your community's in poverty? Like, um, this is a way to get your mom the, the health care she needs. This is a way to get your grandma into a good home. What, like, what, you're against these things. You're against taking and just having that thought exercise of not just demonizing and saying anybody who deals drugs is just a terrible person and they have the worst of intention for you and your family. It's like, they're likely incentivized by certain things and disincentivized in other things. And just being humble in that way, I think it's just, it's really valuable to have someone like yourself go, there isn't a correct answer. When we're talking about the morals of journalism, it's it's the thought process. It's being critical of yourself. It's being uh, making sure that if you do have a certain perspective that you're just cognizant of it and you're, you're being careful on, on how you're approaching things, that you're not saying, this is my perspective. It's now the only perspective that matters and I'm going to push that 110% in one direction. And I think it's one of the reasons that I think um, your whole team really resonates with people because... Um, you you can perhaps disagree, but I've seen uh, a lot of really positive reception to the work you're doing with the Fraser Valley Current, and I'm just interested in in your thoughts, perhaps after the floods or or throughout this process of the response you've gotten. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's just the the response has been really gratifying, and just kind of consider, continuing to hear like it's always good to hear people say good things about you. So um, I don't want I don't need to talk too much about that, but. But I, I think going back to your last point, it's like there are right answers and wrong answers. That's like something I think that we do also need to realize that there are. You look at all the all the questions. There are there are things that incentivize people to do things, and there, are, in terms of personal lives, you're right. Like there are things, major gray areas and spectrums where you know you, people choose these things for a very rational and logical reason. Um, but there are also other people who choose those things for log- rational and logical reasons that are that they use different factors to cal- to calculate those logical reasons because their goal is different than um, than their goal is just different than somebody else's, and that goal can be unwittingly or wittingly harmful and bad right like there are we see in the news right now we people who have uh and and one world leader in particular who has a goal that is um pretty clearly um the wrong goal and he's taken a variety of courses to um and he's incentivized in various ways and you might be able to see how he comes to his thought processes while still saying no this was the wrong thing to do because your objective here is wrong and not in um not in people's interest not in the interest of ordinary people who are in your country and other countries absolutely uh one area that i've noticed people respond really positively towards that perhaps you've challenged the idea of this uh that we have a mainstream media um and i'm interested in your thoughts on this because we see um, and you talked about this really well, that there are certain publications that have this challenge of getting more information out and not 
being as detailed, and I think they get put on one side. And then there's work you're able to do that's more in-depth, that people seem to really appreciate the in-depth nature of, and then they seem to put you in a different category. And I'm just interested in your your thoughts on um, how things are emerging, because you do see independent media through things like Substack that people are gearing towards. And you think of, I think her name's Tara Henley, who left CBC for um, Substack. And there are other individuals who are journalists who are choosing to take the more independent route. And I think they take on a sense of personal responsibility to communicate as much of the truth as possible, because now you have the trust of these people and you have to somehow maintain it. And you don't have the same resources as a big newsroom. So uh, your word is um, more there's more responsibility on personally, whereas with perhaps something like CBC, the name CBC has such strong positive brand recognition that you you don't have as much personal responsibility for that piece in comparison to someone where it's just your name and people are turning in and paying for your Substack account and your writing. And so I'm just interested in your thoughts. I know on your Twitter page you say uh, there's no such thing as the mainstream. And so I'm just interested in your thoughts. Yeah, so... So I think. Sorry, if you could just pull up the microphone. Oh yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So I think the characterization of that is, um, in terms of the motivations of people and the incentives, is potentially a little off. In terms of, I think lots of, I think that the responsibility reporters feel is to the truth. And I think when I when I, when we talk about mainstream media, I think that's those or when what's not mainstream media is that those are. I, I don't like the term mainstream media because I think it's used by people to to put people put reporters and organizations they don't like into buckets or into a into a I don't like this bucket and few people um, uh, use mainstream media in a, a positive way in part just because that's how that word has come to be um, themed I think people maybe associate are able to re- reconcile their approval of certain news outlets and their disapproval of and other news outlets by putting some into I like these independent news organizations and I don't like these non-independent news organizations and I think that there's little in terms of um often little and there are some things that are different about working for a larger established corporation that's been around for decades versus one that's been around for under 10 years. Um, And most of the differences there lie in corporate structures and things that are, um, are not the things that you might, that the people who favor or disfavor those organizations um, think that they don't like about those organizations. Um, So there's, not the, and I know a lot of journalists in a lot of different news organizations, and there aren't um, almost universally everybody's doing the same job and has about the same constraints on what they can and can't write, which is they're trying to report the news as they see it, and there are there is very little to no constraints um, on what they can and can't write beyond resources and resources is a a huge thing. And I keep coming back to that because it determines basically everything that a news organization does is where it puts resources and in what degree. So if you're putting resources into, um, coverage of certain topics, you're going to have more stories on certain topics. If you're putting resources into hiring reporters with 
um, certain expertises, those and and knowledge bases, those knowledge bases are going to inform stories in certain ways. Um, that if you hire uh, a uh, a journalist straight out of university, you're going to have a different story. And that's just a resource question and a, and an experience question. And it's not necessarily always a, or it's almost never a, what somebody's intention with a story is. Um, there's, um, with organizations, there's levels of accountability built in that are sometimes good, sometimes um, problematic when it comes to um not so much deterring stories, but um, influencing how people can speak their minds. So there's there are various things in various corporations about um, people maybe discouraged from from posting something that's controversial on Twitter or something. But when it comes to um, or or revealing maybe this, but there there's people are discouraged to different extents in different organizations to revealing. Um, who they are and what they think, and where kind of what where I was talking about before, um, where their um, where their background and what their what their thinking is. Because again, if no story is, if every story is informed by somebody's background and um, history, well, you can never remove that. You can only change the illusion that that history and background of that reporter doesn't exist. So if you um, there are companies that might have a policy about, okay, don't post um, anything, say, politically critical of any politician. I don't know if it's some. I'm just I'm just throwing out an example um, of any politician because we don't want that to reflect badly on our organization. And there's reasons those policies exist, but there's also reasons that in doing so, you're um, you're giving the illusion that reporters are fully objective when they're not, um, which has its own consequences. Um, and then you're just deterring them from revealing their, I don't want to say biases because we all have biases, but it's, it's taken as, as an, as a, as a critical word. Um, but what I'm trying to get is like on, on like all the, all the reporters are trying to do the same job, but if you, when people get mad at one organization or one set of organizations, they tend to lump them in um, under a certain category. And in the media's case, it tends to be mainstream media. Um, and then when, and that allows them to separate who they like from who they don't like. And so they might like us and then not like hypothetically the CBC or something. Um, and people have to realize that the general idea of, um, the the resources that we devote to certain stories are going to be different. Um, and so the content that we produce is going to be different and what they may like about that content or not is different, um, is going to change. So we're going to be more local and we're going to, um, focus on writing in a certain style. We might have a certain tone in our writing. Um, but kind of the, the underlying principles of a reporter, whether they're, he, whether whether I'm here at the current or before at the the Abbots for News or if I had taken a job at whatever the CBC, I'd have the same underlying principles. I'd um, be though they would be influencing me in the same way. Um, and if anything, 
going out on your own as a truly independent person. So somebody who is like, yes, on, on Substack or something that creates just like going out on like joining the current, it creates incentives in certain ways and you have, um, and you have certain things you can do or can't do that are different than, uh, than you could do if you're part of a large organization and you don't have to worry about some things and you have to worry about some things more. You also have incentives to, um, to, you're also really tied to the business, um, the business sustainability of your project, which can have good incentives and it can have bad incentives in terms of like just how frequently you do any X thing. If you do any, story on let's just say uh the truck convoy you see and you um you see how many readers you gain or lose and so that can have incentives on um not your beliefs or not what you report maybe even but just how frequently you go to that topic and that can change um the tone of any publication and so those are things that um are someone, some of the benefits and drawbacks of something. So you can build a niche for yourself, but you can build a very small niche that doesn't end up talking to anybody new, um, but is very good at talking to the same people. Um, and so I think um, I, I'm going around in circles, but I think that there's like very, um, it, 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 it's, it's, it's something that people need to be aware of is that the, the people who are, doing the job to the best of their abilities at lots of these large organizations are humans and trying to do their very best just in the same way. They aren't being beholden to some um, large thing that says they have to say good things about this or that. Um, I know they're pretty much free to write and follow the stories that they think are important. And sometimes I disagree with what, how, and what and how they pursue a story too. Um, there's all different qualities of reporters. There's exceptional ones and there's okay ones. Um, but I think that lots of people um, think that there are directives by these large corporations um, and there's not that many large corporations anymore and there's not that many of them um, to to pursue uh, journalism in a certain way when a lot of them are um, not going that way. And then like you look at something like the National Post, and um, I take issues with a lot of things that they might choose to write, but they're choosing to write those and they're publishing them both because they've hired, and this is a research thing, people who believe these certain things. So these people and or ha these people have these backgrounds that lead them towards these stories that they think are important, and they come to conclusions that are informed by their own backgrounds. And the nefariousness of it isn't, there's not much nefariousness to it. They are choosing to um, employ people who um, who come to a topic with their own background and their own ideas, and that influences how things get written. And um, there are editors who will see in their over, their or corporate people who will see certain things do better in terms of drawing an audience than others and they'll encourage people to further explore these topics that have already maybe um, interested them and 
there's the there's not that much of a nefarious intent there there's choices in terms of where resources are put and then those resource choices influence kind of the whole tone and content of a of an organization um in term and then if you go on the opposite direction to a one person shop well you don't have the diversity of different people and the that one person is making all those choices for themselves and in the same way that um their and then their background comes and informs that so i think those are things to just i think keep in mind and why i'm like very hesitant to like ever put there's it's a spectrum just like everything else is i think yeah i think of audience capture even for myself and um there are certain guests who i can predict are going to pull people in uh, a certain way i can talk about how the conversation is or or what we talked about that's going to make people really interested but then there's people i feel like i have a responsibility to talk to uh like lee harding is a biologist and he's focused on wolf culling and his research is referenced a lot when it comes to how do we go about taking care of these wolves and, and reducing the populations in, in a proper sustainable way and i knew that that wasn't going to pull a lot of people in i knew that He's never looked for social media likes. He doesn't have any social media. But I felt like I wanted to understand the topic better and who better than the person who wrote a lot of the research articles referenced by governments, uh, news articles. Uh, it was just something that I felt I had a, an obligation to do. But if you fall in love with the likes, the comments, the views, if you go too far down that path, you kind of get what's called audience capture, where you are speaking to people. And if you have a different viewpoint, you can start to lose them, which is why I've tried my best now to stop looking at the views, the likes, and make sure that I'm putting out content that I'm just proud of that I believe in that I think are going to help inform people and I think the way you put it is is really important for people to understand because I I agree with you that um, we have certain organizations that have certain incentives or certain audiences that they perhaps appeal to and then you would just have people who don't perhaps see their their lens or they're not able to talk about their lens and say hey this is this is my background and I think that that would be an area particularly with newscasts where you have people of diverse backgrounds, but we don't get to hear why they got into it, what their passion is, what they wanted to do. Why did they get into this role? Um, perhaps that's on their bio on the website, but you don't get to hear it from them. And so you don't have a lot of context as to why they're there and the other person isn't. And I think that that restoration of trust in journalism, I think is something important to me. It's something I see with The Current. Um, when you guys start all of your newsletters, you have just a witty kind of blurb at the very beginning that I think lightens the mood. It kind of places you in that. It gives you more of a personalized, oh, this is a human being on the other side of this article. This isn't uh, some in industry trying to manipulate me into thinking X, which is, I think, where a lot of people are starting to go. They're starting to move into that direction. And it worries me because I don't want us to repeat what the U.S. has done when they have CNN and Fox News and people consume one or the other and they never speak to each other and then they get more extreme and extreme and extreme and then they're even more mad at each other and you can't even have a civil dialogue. I worry when I see um, perhaps the Globe and Mail on one side and the National Post on the other and then people starting to, oh, I don't read that. I, that's fake news or these comments and then we start to have a more divided populace and I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, like it's, it's it's really interesting just thinking about how to make sure this is in the right place. Um, like the, you, you mentioned the intro, and that's one thing I've been thinking about is that one of the reasons we don't get that much hate mail 
is that probably people just realize that we're humans. Um, and that's something that doesn't mean that, like, and, and going back to like what separates us from another place, that could just be like one of our like fortunate things that we stumbled across is that, um, and maybe it's something that other places might want to consider is that um, to humanize the people making a product um, has itself a benefit both to the people because it's there's people in my profession who are dealing with horrible abuse um, that they don't deserve, um, but and and those people create are, are are what makes those companies work. And so there's a world in which you wonder if um, if there's maybe something those companies can do, if those organizations can do to better humanize um, their staff and better human, like better remind people that this is a product made by humans is going to be flawed in the same way that all things are made by humans, but is also like I, uses that human human experience just in the way that that your podcast uses your human experience. And there is one reason why I think podcasts have have worked is that it you hear the person's voice and when hearing that person's voice in a especially in a casual manner, um, you're less likely to get super mad at them maybe. Um, and you're less likely to, and you're more likely to relate to them and, and, and empathize with them. And so, yeah, that's like, that's something I've been thinking a lot just in the last couple of weeks. And, um, and it's something that is, I think we, like our profession can do a better job of, some reporters can do a better job of, of too, in, in how they convey themselves. I can probably sometimes do that too on social media and like, you just want to, remind people that you are a human when you're when you're writing about x and y and z and sometimes everybody consumes things in a different ways so it's understandable that some people will come across your work maybe incidental to all that and they'll never get that experience and then but there's there's all these ways in which you can actually format things you when and when you talk about like kind of the the guests you bring on i'm interested here like how that's kind of how you felt your knowledge base expanding over time and what that's given you um, and how that contributes to kind of how uh, your podcast is growing and then how you kind of consider the world in general. Um, that is a very complex question. One of my goals is to bring about different guests from a variety of backgrounds. And that was something that was important to me from the beginning. And I could see during probably the first year, people really wanting to typecast the podcast. Um, I'd have couple of lawyers on and they'd say, oh, you're a lawyer podcast. I'd have a, a few people on who were business owners and they'd, oh, you're a business podcast. Oh, you had a few indigenous people. You must be an indigenous podcast. And so the challenge was making sure that I don't define myself and that I look at this as a learning experience for me because the goal from the beginning was to say, um, before I started this, I told my partner, Rebecca, like, I feel like I don't have a lot of role models. There's a few people that I've been able to glean knowledge from, but we wouldn't have dinners. We wouldn't connect regularly where I could learn, oh, how did you go about doing this? And, and how did you think about that? And so knowing that there's brilliant people like Brian Minter, but how long do you get with him if you're in the store? Maybe five minutes, 10 minutes, then he's got to go do something else. And so there's people that I felt like I would have done 
better to learn from because I think I made a lot of mistakes during my high school life of thinking of how people should be or how I should be or how I should hold others accountable or um, how I should approach things. But I didn't have someone able to say, okay, this is how you learn from other people. This is how to listen. This is how to, um, these are the people you should perhaps look up to. Not having that made me feel perhaps disconnected from the leaders in our community and having a humility of, I don't know everything and there's lots to learn. So starting it, I was like, who would I have wanted to hear from growing up? Who would I have benefited from that would have expanded my understanding of things rather than having um, I'm right, you're wrong perspective? Because um, my mother struggled with uh, FASD growing up. And so there was a lot of overcompensation. I pretended to know things. I tried to sound smarter than I was just to cope with the fact that I, I really felt like I was directionless. And so I really wanted to address that. And I was like, well, who do I talk to? Who do I, who can I talk to where it's not a counseling session of these are my problems. This is, this is how you address them. And then you move forward. It's like, how do I connect with those people that I would have liked to listen to? And then realizing that there's so many brilliant people out there that only get like a sentence in um, a news article often, Uh, like John Haidt, who was one of my professors who got mad at me for sleeping in his class. And he was like, Hey, like you're better than this. And those comments really pushed me to want to figure out, well, how good could I be if I were to amount to that? And so I took an interest in saying, okay, let's let's sit down with people, long form. Uh, there's some people that I admire that I know not everybody admires, like Joe Rogan, um, where I said, that three-hour format, there's something to that long term that I can benefit from, that I can um, utilize their time, hopefully properly, and learn from other people. And so I started that out invited people on that I knew personally that I said, you have some nuggets of knowledge that I think you can share. And then I can start to learn about this medium. And then through that, it's just been a development of saying, what don't I know about? So uh, upcoming, I'm going to have our our provincial beekeeper, a person who shares information on how bees work. Uh, We went to um, Chilliwack Honey and we learned a lot about how bees function and how important. And I remember seeing the bee movie and and really being awakened to the fact that we have a very delicate ecosystem and saying, this is a person uh, that's not going to get three hours on a newscast. So maybe I can sit down with them and learn something. And then I'm trying to find other people in niche areas that don't get the same light, like uh, Gitanjali, who's an expert in global development and saying, well, there's a lot going around. Around, a, lot, a lot going on around the world that we don't know about. And she had really positive things to say about um, the development and Canada's policies um, in foreign affairs regarding women and making sure that both women and boys are supported in getting an education, growing up without stereotypes and judgment and and all of these different things and um, trying to convince her to consider doing something of her own where she shares those positive foreign stories of, uh, she talked about the, the detriments of just focusing too much on women. And I guess there was this woman who was uh, working really hard to develop her farm. And she was using ancient knowledge instead of the modern kind of techniques. And then when the newscaster really focused on her and excluded everyone else, her husband uh, took a tractor and destroyed the whole farm area because he felt left out. And so understanding that we can we can play a role and we can understand what's taking place around the world in a meaningful way has 
I've tried to come at every guest as a student and have a mindset of how is the conversation going to be structured. And so for someone like Scott Sheffield, we went through, I was like, okay, this is a professor. He's really knowledgeable. So let's go from World War One to World War Two to Indigenous people to BC. And I'll do that all first. Then we'll talk about his family life and, and stuff like that. The same logic kind of applied with this. I know that for a lot of listeners, the floods are going to be at the forefront of their mind. And so that's going to be a good introduction for them on what's important today, but also understanding who you are. What, what's your background? How did you get here? Uh, what are you trying to do with the Fraser Valley Current? And how does that matter to other people? And so over the course of developing these interviews, I've tried to understand what the what the layout's going to be. And often the, the guest maybe doesn't see that. Uh, maybe listeners don't see that either, that I have um, a mindset when I'm going into the conversation of, of how it's going to be structured uh, so that there's a logic to it, at least for myself, so I can steer us back. Because in those beginning days, it was kind of like, I don't know what my next question is going to be. It's going to be based on whatever pops into my head next. Mm -hmm. And so I've worked hard on trying to understand how I best learn and how to fully utilize this medium. Because uh, for Indigenous people, we talk about how we're from an oral culture. Then I think podcasts are the way. I think that we need to lean into this medium. I think we need to take advantage of the long-form nature. Um, and having someone like Sonny McKelsey on really demonstrated to me, this person needs like 10 more episodes because he was shortening everything for me. And I was like, that's so wild because so many people go three hours. That's probably a little bit too long. And realizing that some people have developed a really deep understanding of things and we should admire that and, and take that extra time. And uh, that's an area I noticed that I've really gotten interested in is hearing from indigenous leaders like Sonny McKelsey, Eddie Gardner, Carrie Lynn Victor, because their thoughts are really profound. And I feel like growing up, I was taught to take an interest in indigenous culture, but it was in a finger waggy, you should know it because you have to, not because you would want to. And then when you hear from someone like Sonny McKelsey, you go, wow, like um, anytime I tell someone now that uh, Mount Chiam is for wi where wild strawberries grow, they go, that's so cool. And that wild strawberry patch is still up there. There's something heartwarming, I guess, about that for people. And so I enjoy learning about those things and trying to share my interest with other people. And uh, that's really how I've tried to develop this is what conversations are going to interest me. And if it interests me, hopefully it'll inter interest other people. And so it's been a challenge when people just say, you should have this person on, which I get all the time. Oh, you should have my cousin Tim on. He'd be great. Um, I have to have a vision for where I take the conversation. And some people see their family member or someone they know in a certain way. Um, but if I can't, if, if that person just says you should have that person on and they're not willing to elaborate and say, this is why, this is what I see in them, this is what I admire about them, um, it's tough for me to have those people on because I need to see a three-hour conversation and, and perhaps not a 30-minute conversation. There's people I find interesting that I could probably do 30 minutes with, but I can't see that full three hours with. And so I hope that sort of answers your question. Yeah, like I, and I'm really curious as to so when I grew up, I didn't grow up and pet family will say I still talking that much about things. I've always been a written word type of person. And then for a variety of reasons, it's always like ordering my thoughts, uh, uh, using words like orally has always been a challenge, or at least it's been something that I haven't, a skill I haven't developed um, and I've developed it more than last year, in part because of things like the flood and I was on some radio programs, and then in part because um, starting a new news organization that you have to talk to um, rotary clubs and that type of thing. And some of those things are just frightening as as all. Um, 
but um, like looking back, I realized that's like a skill I hadn't really um, developed over time. And so I'm interested from you, like, have you always had that skill to be able to order your thoughts orally um, in depth in kind of the way you just did? Or is that something you've seen yourself really grow at over since starting the podcast? I think I've always been, to a certain extent, articulate in terms of my ability to communicate. I think it really started to develop uh, like in high school, but it was dishonest. It was saying facts I didn't really understand. It was trying to hold positions I didn't really understand um, and, and almost grandstanding in a dishonest way. And it was trying to be smart. I was accused a lot through middle school and high school, uh, being told, you're not going to graduate. Like, um, they would tell my mom, my mom would start crying with me in the room and, and like, what am I going to do? Like, how do I support my child in their development? Um, I had one teacher, uh, say that I had narcissistic personality disorder. And so there was this really aggressive part of me. Um, I do rank higher on the disagreeable side. Um, I think I'm in like the 99th percentile of disagreeable and it, it was a reputable, um, place that I took that personality course from. And so I was trying to be intelligent or what I thought intelligent looked like. And so I think that's where it started from. Um, but then there was just that part of me inside me saying like, no, you don't really think that. No, you don't really understand what you're saying. Uh, no, you don't really know what you're talking about right now. You're saying things because they sound smart, but they're not necessarily smart. And so I started digging in and trying to say, okay, you're saying these things that aren't, that aren't you that aren't embodying how you actually feel. How do you fix that? And so I started listening to a lot of podcasts and hearing other people have honest conversations, uh, like Andrew Huberman, who's a neuroscientist, and he is really interested in sharing his understanding of the mind and, and how to utilize the tools of our brain uh, to fully maximize your, your life and your life quality. Um, during that same time, I started thinking about um, the people who had sacrificed for me, not perhaps knowingly, but knowing that my grandmother attended Indian residential school um, and that she experienced a lot of the abuses we talk about today, um, knowing that she, um, for better or worse, passed on FASD to my mother because of the drinking that she did to cope with those atrocities, and knowing that my mother was adopted as a consequence of the 60 scoop um, into a Caucasian family and those people put a lot of work into supporting my mother and then um, and with her the challenges she faced and then chose to support me as well that there had been a lot of background of investing in me and seeing throughout my education at UFE that indigenous people as a whole aren't represented in the best way uh, we're facing a lot of challenges and that I'm I'm not one of those people. And I, I got frustrated throughout that education of the description of Indigenous people as disadvantaged, as, oh, we're not doing well, we're failing. And I, I really resented that because I felt like there are great leaders in Indigenous communities, we're just not hearing from them. And so, yeah, we may have our struggles, but um, my approach was always like, watch us bounce back. Like, don't underestimate us. Just because you can point to our crime rates, our education rates, we're going to turn this around. It's going to take some time. Uh, the Indian residential schools only closed in 1996. Give us, give us a hundred years and we'll turn this around. And so that made me interested in figuring out what my full potential was. And within indigenous culture, we have this idea of seven generations that you're supposed to look back seven generations. And so for indigenous people, your family might have survived Indian residential schools, 60 scoop, colonization, uh, various 
challenges, perhaps famine and struggles that way. Um, but I always want people to keep in mind that you can do that as well, even if you're not Indigenous. So um, if your family experienced World War II, the Cold War, World War One, your family has been through things too that you can learn from and realize perhaps your grandparents wanted to give your parents a better life and your parents wanted to give you a better life. And so what are your responsibilities to them if they've set you up in a better circumstance? What can you do to build on their legacy? And then trying to pass that forward, seven generations is the same idea. And so what can you do for your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren to structure the world in a better way? Climate change is often how people think about that is we're not going to pass on a healthy world for our planet. But um, if you think of there's other examples of that in our political system, uh, in regards to bees, there's lots of different areas where we can make positive progress to to hand off our world in a better way. And so I guess that's one of the the goals and um, perhaps how I've developed this ability to communicate long form is through listening to people long form and, and being patient while they develop thoughts. Like Lex Friedman is one of my favorites right now. And he's he made a really good point about people stop when they're speaking or when they're thinking. If you ask a really good question, it might take a few seconds. And uh, the instinct as podcasters is to to cut those pieces out. People don't have time if it's silent for a few seconds. But there's beauty when people are thinking issues through. And his example was interviewing Elon Musk, who took like 10 seconds to think about the question before he answered. There's something to admire when people take their time and think about something before having like, we want that quick answer that really fast. But don't you want the thought through answer the, the the more thoughtful answer where they've really made sure that what they're saying is correct rather than rushing through and i hope that that's what people learn through these longer form conversations is there's beauty to the whole process of somebody thinking things through and sharing their personal journey because that's the other part i felt like i missed out on we talk a lot about how men don't share their emotions as much they're not as vulnerable but the best way to do that is to let them share and not rush them and so I've had multiple guests share emotion on on the podcast that you wouldn't see in rushed interviews in rushed circumstances that I think I can only get out at the two hour mark at the at the two and a half hour mark where they're comfortable now they're calm they're they feel a sense of okay now I can tell you about uh, my struggles with alcohol uh, I can tell you about my honest feelings with uh, First Nations communities I can I can share the vulnerable parts of myself like I've had multiple um, males show emotions in different ways on this podcast um that's not like the crux of it but i think it's it's admirable and i don't think it would have been possible if it was shorter form 30 minute interviews yeah i think that's that's right and that you're especially when you're being interviewed by somebody inevitably you're you're kind of the the format of it's going to change how you react to various things and and like i see that interviewing people what i do is like you want and sometimes like there are various time constraints too that you want to respect people's times and you're you're looking for them to contribute their insight to you as they can but the way you structure a question or the way however you're formatting it's going to impact kind of the depth they give you um and so you can feel people tense up or loosen up in certain ways. And I think one of the, yeah, one of the ways you can do it is that, yeah, by, by structuring these over a longer time period, people do just, they feel often like probably they have like the chance to say something they'd like to have said in the past. You're at a point where it's 
it's something that you can say with out, especially after you preface it with enough of your your life, then people suddenly they see you again, like we talked about earlier, as a human being, and so they're willing to take those ideas in and consider your response in this moment as a human being, and so probably you let down your emotion more at, at that point. I, I'm I'm interested too from your perspective, and this is something uh, this is something I've seen or I've felt like I have a life just like you have a life outside of um, what you do here and what I do current. Um, and that influences kind of how I assume people act and kind of also influences how we do our work and, and kind of how we're trying to reach people in terms of, um, I know that lots of people don't watch the news all the time. I know that lots of people um, aren't don't have these huge polarized opinions. They're just sometimes reading something and then they go off and do their job because their job doesn't involve sitting on a computer for eight hours a day. Um, and I, I, I see those people and I talk to them, like I have some sports teams and the conversation is not often about politics and all the things we like to think is important. We like, and I think lots of people think is kind of what everybody is talking about because what that's what we're interested in. And instead those are people that are interested in certain things at certain times. And then, are also part of our community. So we need to be reaching them in certain ways, both with information and say during a natural disaster, uh, we need to be reaching those people. And so um, that's something that I've factored, that factors into kind of how we approach things. So when I write something, I think, can my um, friend who is um, like builds homes for a living or something, is he going to have kind of the, um, the, awareness of this one concept um, that certain people with in certain fields might know about, um, but which you need to be like deeply invested in these certain fields to know about. And I think sometimes those are the words that we use when we talk about important things like, um, like social issues. We can sometimes reporters and others can use words that um, require like, there's a lot baked into that single word. And um, I know there's resistance to thinking that do we really need to like hold people's hands through um, this thing again and again, but sometimes you just do because people are busy and they don't know these things. And sometimes you do need to beat them over the head with like the pre-existing facts, whether it be about climate change or, or whatever, um, because they're busy, they're doing other things and they don't, um, they haven't been thinking about these in depth because everybody's got a ton of things to think about. So I'm wondering like from you, like how, what, what part of your background kind of informs how you, and they, I guess you just answered this, but um, do you feel that too, like that, that, that outside of this, your, your background outside of this is kind of also impacting kind of the, your audience and your, how you think about your audience and, um, who you're trying to reach in terms of people who aren't just um, or aren't um, like you and I maybe, but 
trying to broaden your audience and how do you go about doing that? Yeah, I think that that is one of the most important parts. And I mentioned it a little bit earlier that I think that it's important that I always am open to hearing both sides of a perspective. Um, one of them that people might be surprised by is I'm very hesitant on land acknowledgements. I'm super hesitant on how we talk about reconciliation as a culture. I think that these topics, if you push them in the wrong way, which in my opinion, they've, they've been pushed on Canadians in poorly done with standardizing an email signature at the bottom saying that you're on the unseated when people don't know what they're saying and you're making them say it that's not something to me that's going to bring about reconciliation it's going to bring about a sense of frustration it's going to bring about hesitancy of why do i have to do this um and those things they made me nervous when I was going through school and I'd see at UFE, my professor saying, holding a little piece of paper and saying, I hereby recognize I am, this person doesn't know what they're saying. And that, that scared me because they're, we, the word racist has been used more and more commonly. I don't agree that when the Wet'suwin'en things were taking place, that the, there were disrespectful people saying belligerent things. I'm not willing to call those people racist. Um, I think that when you're frustrated and you're driving to work and someone's blocking your path and they frustrate you in some way, that's a reaction. It could have been a different skin color. It could have been a different group of people. And they would have said belligerent things regardless of the group. That doesn't mean that they have prejudice against that one group. That means that they're reactive, short-sighted, perhaps, perhaps temperamental um, and inconsiderate. Uh, I'm... I'm protective of that word, but I do think that when you start telling people you need to think this way, uh, I'm against the idea, and this is perhaps controversial to some, of the idea of white privilege. Of course, people have privileges. They have better circumstances. I was able to have my full education supported by my indigenous community. My partner, who's part Ukrainian, she has to take student, out, student loans out and work part-time in order to pay for that. I have certain privileges. She has certain privileges. We all have different starting points. The beauty and the, the, what I hope people get out of this podcast is that no matter somebody's circumstance, they have overcome adversity to get to where they are. Um, when I reached out to Scott Sheffield, he was like, well, I haven't really experienced any adversity, so I'm, I'm probably not a good fit. And I was like, you can't, like, I don't believe you. And then on the podcast, he talked about how hard, how how difficult it was for him to go take a job when his family was on the island and go work in the interior and how his son started to feel like his dad didn't love him anymore because he never got to see him. That's adversity. That's super, like in that moment, you know he wants to quit his job and say, I don't need the money that bad. I need to be with my child. And so people have these moments that that develop them and I get scared when we we focus on one group's problems too much because it makes other people feel like my problems don't matter. And my partner struggled with this. She said, I don't feel like people, like we've been at dinners with people and they want to hear about me and, and they want to hear about Indian residential schools. And, they want, and that's really good. I don't want to discourage that. But you make other people feel like what they've faced and their challenges don't matter because you're you're putting some up on a pedestal and others are, well, that's life and, and you've got all these other privileges. And so it's been important to me to highlight everybody's adversity. And that's been sort of the cornerstone of it is because um, some people say they believe in the idea of white privilege, then they come on and they talk about how they overcame adversity and how they grew as a consequence and how they hope others learn from what they went through. And so I I struggle with that movement and I see rumblings 
of real genuine racism start to arise when we don't let other people share their stories when we don't when we value some too much and like genuine real people who want the worst for certain communities and that scares me because i want and i think this is not an unreasonable ask is i want everybody to reach their full potential i believe that if you have people in indigenous communities who aren't able to reach their full potential just because their family doesn't have any money because they're they don't own their homes the band owns their homes we miss out on the businesses they'd start the art they'd create the food they could make us the the knowledge they can share with us um we miss out on all of those things and then we don't do as well we uh, you think of when you want to try a new food. Well, why can't you try Bannock? Well, why can't you try different cultures' foods? And isn't that the idea of what Canada was founded on, is that we're multicultural, that we bring the best of all of us, bring the best of everybody, not just these people now and these people later, everybody. And so that is how I've tried to approach it. And I, I know that some may disagree with, with my mindset on that, but it's always with the intent of highlighting people that might not be on your radar, people that weren't on my radar, and trying to make sure that it's it's inclusive of, of everybody and uh, the different occupations and the different work and showing that you can go excel in your life no matter your background. And no matter uh, if you're disadvantaged, you can use that as fuel and like i don't know if you've heard of david goggins um but he's a person who is extremely overweight abused by uh his stepfather ruthlessly in every way imaginable and uh, he talked about this idea of um now he's like an ultra marathon runner and he ran like six ultra marathons in like six weeks or something crazy like that um and he talked about how when he gets to heaven or whenever his life ends hypothetically if that person's there and saying you were supposed to go do this you were supposed to go, oh i didn't expect you to go run that ultra marathon oh i didn't expect you to go and make that difference oh i didn't uh that's what i try and bring to this is um i have a lot going on with law school other jobs um other things pulling my attention but i want to whatever that end date is i want the person to go you weren't supposed to record a thousand interviews we didn't expect you to do that i want to live my life to the fullest and uh these interviews are always fuel for me. They carry me through the week. Um, they, they make me proud when I listen back on them and go, wow, I'm really proud that I asked that question. Or I think like, I'm glad this person shared that. And that was maybe not the easiest. I'm always looking back on them and trying to think, how could I have done this better? How could I have made this more accessible for people? And with the belief that this is my civic responsibility, if I can, I should, because there's so many within my indigenous community who can't or who don't have the resources or who don't have my connections or don't have my educational attributes that make people go, maybe this is a waste of my time, but he has a law, he's going to law school, so maybe it's worth my time to go check it out. Maybe it's not going to be as good as I thought it was going to be. That's why developing the questions is important to me is because I'm asking for three hours of time. And so if I'm not prepared, they're going to say no. And I would too. Three hours is a long time. And so I do my best to be strategic in, in how I approach this. But this is if I could do this full time, I probably this would be my preference because I get so much out of it as the host. And uh, as long as I keep feeling that way, I'm going to keep filling my weekends with this. That's great. Um, yeah. And when you talk, it's it's really interesting to kind of like, hear your perspective too, because like, I, I think of most people, like most things existing on like a spectrum and like, there's going to be, everybody starts, as you said, from different place and see some people start from um, 
or have a lot more challenges than others for obvious reasons and things that are for a whole bunch of different like historical things and and so it's interesting too thinking about like the spectrums of thought among communities and the spectrums of behavior among communities i think about that a lot is that if we want to treat everybody if we assume everybody is a human and equal and um then we need to also accept kind of the failings of of wherever you are on the on the whatever spectrum we're talking about about kind of whether it's um kind of just on the the, the spectrum of diversity of thought too have you when you're talking about and when you're talking to indigenous leaders and when you're like in your own community community and just from your own point of view do you think people kind of simplify too much or grasp the kind of the that indigenous communities are as diverse and um complicated just in terms of like different people having different opinions like in every other community do you think people grasp that to the correct degree um i think that communities with economic development definitely start to have um a variety of perspectives i think you see that with the wetsuin community that their chief and council supported the pipeline and it's their hereditary chief that did not and so um that i feel like was not well communicated to people that that nuance um, I think one of the challenges is that within Indigenous communities, they're so, and I've been asked this, is like, should we get rid of the reserve system? And one of the complexities, at least with my community, is you have a lack of access to information and knowledge and and people from different backgrounds, like I was talking about before. In Indigenous, in my Indigenous communities, you're not going to find doctors, dentists, um, politicians, like people from just an array of experiences that you, oh, this person's my next door neighbor, and I can just go ask them a legal question because they're a lawyer. That exists perhaps on promontory. It doesn't exist in my community. And so the challenge is that you're you're passed on certain baggage, whether you're um, in one community versus another. Some, it might be racial prejudices of are, are, we're better than them and we're in a better circumstance. And then you p- pass that baggage on to your children. In indigenous communities, the sense that I often hear is if you go against the government, you lose. Um, if we've competed, we've tried to stop Indian residential schools. And this was like one really important thing Derek Epp raised, which was we talk about um, discoveries. And for indigenous communities, if you've read the Indian horse book or watched the movie, you know that at the very beginning of that movie, they're fleeing Indian residential schools. They're trying to get their children up north so they don't go to these schools. Why? Because they know that there's a huge risk. Their children aren't going to come home. Um, When you interview people like Charles Joseph, who talk about how there were multiple children who were dead bodies and the people who ran that handed the child the lighter to have to burn the bodies. Um, when you think about the atrocities that have taken place, Indigenous communities knew that, and it it scares me when when you mention that um, certain journalists know not to criticize any politician or that they they I'm not saying they do, but that they that they, they there's a potential for that um, because Indigenous communities know what government overreach, what government errors can do to their community, and so I think that communities are alive to that. It's it's where I've struggled with um, making certain rules and, and regulations on people because 
these rules often detrimentally impact indigenous communities the most and they need more access to counseling more access to resources we need to bring those into indigenous communities and i see that happening with musqueam with squayala with shiactin i see really good progress being made and what i'm working on in law school right now are two different papers one on uh, what are economic development corporations in indigenous communities how do they work um how do they make sure that there's opportunities for economic development and then the other is how do we look at uh, rural communities versus urban because it's really Shiactin and Squayala are, are far better positioned to develop because they're right in the community. What do you do about communities like Yale, uh, like Chawathal, and places even farther up north that don't, again, have the same access to resources? And there's a variety of solutions to these problems. Um, and just having those conversations and getting those people on to share what they know i think just increasing everybody's understanding because again to me if these people don't reach their full potential we we as a society miss out and um i don't know if that's i don't think that that's controversial and i guess it would worry me if, if that was yeah yeah and like talking about geography is a huge one because geography is it determines so much in where somebody is it determines so much in like how much you hear from them because we hear from people in Vancouver um, just because they're closer to more media organizations. So inevitably the, the, um, the coverage of certain things is going to be um, tilted towards having more voices from Vancouver in part. There's lots of people in Vancouver. So it's on like a per capita basis. You justifiable you're trying to reach your audience and you're trying to represent your audience at the same time you have people going through very different things in places further from media or further from resources and how we kind of how they get their views heard how they get their problems heard and how those problems get dealt with is a big thing you see that with Lytton a lot um, and the surrounding area where the there's been a huge amount of coverage of that disaster and that town burning down. But if you look at the progress there, it's been incredibly slow in part because while there's been a large amount of coverage there, um, there has been relatively little um, done in the last six months. And it's something that's just a challenge for something we've tried to do not super successfully because it's just hard because there's not that many people and people are scattered everywhere and it's it's a challenge some places have there's it has been coverage it's made a difference but because it's so far away and because you don't have people driving through it every day because of landslides and fires and stuff it's uh they are in a world in which it is harder for them to get the um the ball rolling on certain things i think or to get exposure that certain things are happening or aren't happening um, that a place in middle of Chilliwack would be. And so the less extreme would be, yes, talking like I imagine like a, a, a community that's right in the middle of Chilliwack, people are going to be more aware of it. It's going to have more benefits than places that, and more just opportunities for the people in it than, than places outside. And I think there's ways in which probably we can improve both people and help both people who are in places like on on reserves and at the same time help people who are off reserve too and are struggling with the same type of thing and living in places like Boston Bar where they're in a community that's 
that's um, been cut off from places and is um, hasn't been growing a lot. And there's limitations on if you're born there. I imagine um, there are there are some. It's it's just tougher to like go to university because you don't you can't live at you live at home and go to university. So there's all these things I think that we have to be aware of, and we have to be aware that we don't if we don't live in those places we don't know or carry that that information with us so we have to actually seek it out and be aware that we don't know it exactly and i think of individuals like uh chief david jimmy and chief derek app and they're consistently working for like bringing in all communities they're not saying uh this is our border don't cross our like we're separate from you and we're different from you uh derek app has worked hard to increase resources not just for his community because he has economic development but for everybody and increasing access to counseling with his social work background and that's a really uplifting positive story and all the committees he's a part of trying to build others up i think is really inspirational and again not somebody who's going to get on to um and this is no insult just to them but like global news or ctv he's not going to be a reoccurring guest he's got too much going on and so the opportunity to sit down and say how'd you do it like how are you putting your community in such a better circumstance than other communities who are more limited on their infrastructure and it's like your point about geography is so important for people to understand because i believe in having these conversations but when i see people like jagmeet singh say well, it's really racist of us that we don't have high quality water um, up in these northern communities in Ontario or none of it. It's like, right, but I've seen, I got the opportunity to go to Saskatchewan and um, take the NLC program, which is a law program for Indigenous people. And one of their chief came, chiefs came in and said, we had a water development plant. They spent the money on it. We didn't have any community members who knew how to run it. We didn't have any um, development in terms of being able to convince people to come and live here because we're asking a lot for someone to move from Vancouver or Saskatoon to move from where they live up into the middle of nowhere. You need to pay those people more and incentivize their investment in moving to our community. We didn't have those resources. And so now we've got this really big water facility plant that nobody knows how to run. And so when I see comments of like, just spend more money, it's it's not just a money issue and that those communities want to employ their community members. So their community members need to be trained on how to use those facilities. It's not just about bringing in foreign people from all around the country to just come and live in this community to fix their problems. You want those community members to take on those roles and have those impacts. And so these issues are complicated. And I think it's important that we always come at them with a sense of humility. We've gotten um, particularly with this government, a lot of lip service, a lot of words that sound good or um, ideas that sound good that make you feel optimistic. Um, but the proof, I think, is in the pudding that on important days to Indigenous people, where were you? Oh, like you were in Tofino. That's very discouraging to our communities. Um, for you to have spoken on that day, for you to have said what you've done so far, even just to say, look at all the things I've done. I would have been fine with that as well. To not be there on a day that that was, I think, one of the first days where it was a, a holiday for people to take off. Um, I think it's important that we we build each other up in that way. And seeing those approaches, I think, discourages Indigenous communities from feeling like uh, they're going to see genuine progress. And I think that my optimism comes from seeing people like Chief Andrew Victor. The way they ran their last election, uh, it it gave me a lot of hope because 
they had the elders ask a list of questions to each person and they had to write out long form answers. In a lot of indigenous communities, the election is based on last name. Um, oh, you're, you're this last name while well, you get the vote. Um, and that's, that's not going to bring about progress. When you think of how many politicians conduct their elections through debates and stuff, we don't have that yet. Hopefully we could do a better job of it than perhaps some of the debates you see. But when we don't have that, we don't get the best ideas that get to lead the community. But that is what's taking place with communities like Squayala and Shiacton. They have amazing leadership and genuine people have been at that table for years saying this is time to pass on the torch to the young leaders who, who have a vision and want to run with it. And that gives me a lot of hope because I think you could see Indigenous communities outpace um, other communities because there's a little bit less red tape. There's a little bit more opportunity to do things differently. And that gives me a lot of hope in terms of, of where we're heading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's the, the, the systems that you spoke of, like, and I think we've heard the term systemic racism, but like just the systems, just in general, systems are like super complicated. That's why what makes some systems. And I think I get, and looking at like going back to the flood thing, flood protection stuff and flood mitigation is a big system. And you get the sense sometimes that, um, so is policing. Policing is a big system. It's like a multitude of police organizations and they're all tasked with different things. And to, we can, I think lots of times try to improve elements of those systems. But if we conclude, but sometimes I think there's good reason to think that these systems were set up 60 years ago or 90 years ago and are and like, and do, are we putting enough effort into considering whether the system itself is um, just needs to be torn up and redrawn in terms of not necessarily big, like defunding certain things or, or reallocating, but just changing how things are funded, how thing where the money is coming, who gets what, and, and being able to do that in a better way. We see that with, again, flooding, where municipalities are have been tasked for 20 years with paying for um, flood protection. And now, finally, the government has said, okay, no, that's not working. We need to come up with a new system, essentially, um, for how that's working, or new allocation. And that is, it shows progress. Um, but it's like one system among many, and you just don't see those changes in systems very often, and for good reason, because it's incredibly hard to do, partly because I think politicians are just, it's a lot of work, and politicians work on like a four-year time cycle. And then partly, I think, just because of lack of imagination sometimes, that thinking about which systems should be overhauled and who's going to do that and who's going to do that's a huge thing because there's only so many people out there and everybody's super busy as it is and everybody is only so has only so much capacity and there's only so many people with that capacity and there's only so many people who can do what you're doing or or be a reporter or or run a water system or or farm food or there's only so many people out there so it's all tough yeah absolutely i'd really like to uh i know you have a hard out um let's just make sure can you tell us about the uh journalists you work with can you tell us about how you came about bringing on grace and jothi if i'm yeah. saying her name perfect yeah 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 so grace 
was the editor at the Agassiz Harrison Observer for a few years. I don't have the exact number, but when I was in Abbotsford, um, her work always stuck out to me as like somebody who, and she was part of the same chain and, and we'd see work from various people. And there was lots of people doing lots of great work. Um, the graces was pretty consistently very high quality. She is clearly trying new things with things like maps. And she is also finding interesting stories and telling them in interesting ways. So when I started current and, um, knew that we had the budget to bring another person on there were maybe two or three people um who were kind of at the top of my list and that's not a slight to anybody who wasn't because there's lots of reporters out there um but in terms of kind of where we were and who was um who was somebody who i thought that would complement my skill set well and add new things to what i couldn't do um, she was somebody who was there and I thought would do very well. Um, and then she's surpassed all those and is more organized than me and does a whole bunch of stuff that people don't see and um, does a lot of editing. And uh, be, it wouldn't be what we were without her. And then we brought Jolothi on in November. And then that was an interesting time because, again, her first day was on the day that Highway 1 closed down between Chilliwack and Abbotsford and everything. Um, went to hell so she just basically came in and and instantly started helping us like manage the flood of flood um the the, the all the stuff we were having to do and or needed to do in terms of trying to inform people and and keep up to date on what was happening just stay cognizant and and participate and, and get out our daily product that we get out every weekday morning um and so she was super helpful that way. And then since then, um, we've been working and she's done some great stories for us. And she used to work at the Langley Advanced Times. And so I knew her work through that way. And and yeah, and she came on and it's been a great help. She she helps and just like Grace helped fill in some gaps um, in my skill set, Jothi's helped in filling some gaps that Grace and I don't have and and. Together, this is kind of like how a news organization grows and, and succeeds is that you have enough people with enough knowledge who are able to do enough different things to hopefully provide that. And this one thing I think about a lot is like the mix of stuff that we do because we don't want all our stuff to be about Chilliwack or Abbotsford or we don't want all this our stuff to be about floods or um, farming or business or we want to ideally have something again, because the newsletter is kind of our main product, in there every day, hopefully, that somebody finds value, that a reader can find value in. And if they don't find value one day, we really want them to be able to find value the next morning. That's kind of how this thing's going to succeed, is if we build that um, that relationship with our readers where they're getting that value um, and learning and kind of seeing that this is something that, they want in their email inbox. And if they don't, they can always unsubscribe, just like you can unsubscribe to various newspapers. But um, but that's kind of how it works. So you need that mix of stories and you need that mix of personalities. And it's like any news organization where you you ideally don't have everybody who's just like the same the same person. You have different people from different backgrounds and different knowledge bases that can call, all kind of like provide their unique 
um, ingredient to to the the product. Can you highlight um, what Grace wrote? You mentioned an internment camp, and then perhaps some work from Jothi that you saw that you have really admired or, or thought was great. Just because you mentioned at the beginning that you really uh, thought that that was one of your best pieces so far, um, and that it didn't get the coverage. So let's try and give it a little bit of shine. yeah. The- yeah, the Tashmi internment camp piece that Grace work was wrote was really interesting about the internment camp that was set up in the Sunshine Valley during World War II and the work that's being done to um, kind of try and preserve that history and just drawing on historic um, documents about one of the families who um, was removed from their home and had to had to go to Tashmi and I found that really interesting. The other really interesting piece that she did i think that sticks out in my mind is one on on joseph trutch and his work and how it related specifically to the fraser valley and and the 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 shrinking of the reserves here and it's one thing that like ideally we're going to keep trying to focus on and look at is just kind of how um how those things because all those things have long implications there's huge value in land right now we all know and who owns land has huge eff- eff- effects on how our communities grew to where we are today and how they're going to continue to grow and who um, developed those communities and who has power and who doesn't and how just how things are, are changing. And so those are really interesting. And then Jothi's done a couple of great pieces. She's um I'm just trying to think what's been published and what hasn't, because there's a couple of ones. Well, the, the 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 most recent one was was a was a great one that she'd done. She went out to visit some uh, Sikh motorcycle members of a Sikh motorcycle club, Sikh motorcycle club, who were helping a couple who was new to the Agassi area rebuild their property, and just amid kind of the unhappy news, it was just I, I saw a lot of we had a lot of great response to this. It was a little heartwarming story about a club that was basically begging more people to call them because people were too shy to, to, to want to call them. But this couple called them and the, the club did a great work, did great work time just fixing this, these, this couple's property. Cause this couple was also new to the area. They didn't know many people and um, they were able to get help from, from these people and now meet new people and, their neighbors saw kind of the 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 impact that this motorcycle club made, and you don't the average person doesn't talk very much to um, you talk to people who live next door, but it's great to like see those cross community, even if it's just cross geographical barriers, kind of, and how we're all kind of part of the same community. I just love what you guys are doing. I have a huge admiration for the role you played during the floods. Um, I love that you're still bringing it up and you're looking into it because I do think that we struggle with having a short-term kind of life cycle on issues and that we can forget and then all of a sudden the flood happens again and we're in the same circumstance. So I really admire uh, the work you're doing. I'm a huge huge advocate for I send your newsletter out all the time because I really believe in everything about it from the uh, witty little blurb I again I think that makes it super personable I remember graces with the train and the shenanigans going on there and it's just it makes it you eager to find out what's going on in your community Uh, it makes it more personable I think the approach all of you have had throughout um, great times throughout tough times um, highlighting different communities like uh, the Semeth First Nation I think you did a great job 
job of that. I've learned about p potential guests as a consequence of the work you're doing. And so I am just super grateful for um, all of you guys' work on this. And I hope to continue to have you as a guest um, and your team as a guest because there's, you guys are always looking into new things and uh, there's more information for us to learn. And hopefully we can share that through the written form and through uh, oral communication and have these complex complex conversations because I've learned a lot and I feel like we could go another three hours in terms of all the complex issues that we're facing. So I really appreciate you being willing to take the time. Thanks so much. Like, I'm super impressed with your podcast. The Again, you talk about getting ideas from us. I've We've I've looked at your guest roster and looked at your podcast and thought, okay, we, we need to try and get a hold of this person. Sometimes we can't get a hold of them because um, you do a great job in, in, in finding people and it's it's really impressive and I hope you keep doing it. Awesome. Well, please tell people how they can find you online, on social media, how they can connect with your website and subscribe. All right. So I just you can subscribe to the daily newsletter at www.fvcurrent.com. Uh, we come out every weekday morning. You get links to both the stories we produce and links to other stories of interest in the community and that's our main product. And I guess I'm on Twitter at uh, Ty underscore Olson, but don't worry about that. www.fvcurrent.com. Um, <laughs> uh, That's the one that I, I, I want to be selling. <laughs> Go check it out. Their coverage is in-depth. It's high quality. I truly admire all the work they're doing. You can find them on Instagram. Um, I highly recommend them. Please go check them out and support this great local news.